female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He hit your face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Ooh, well, hello there, boys and gals and my non-binary pals. Welcome back to Man Eaters, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. Whether it's biting, scratchings, maulings, or clawings, we're here to talk about it. Oh, Get out of here. Hey, get out. Oh, what's going on? Oh, get out of here, you old, you old weirdo. Oh, I'm so sorry, everybody. I'm so sorry, guys. That was, uh, that was Louisiana Jim. Uh, we keep him in the, in the basement here. He must have got out. I'm so sorry. We really only let him out for special occasions like Christmas or Easter or the anniversary of 9-11 for some reason. He's really into that. Not, not really sure what's going on there. Uh, welcome, everybody, back to Man Eaters, and welcome to... The penultimate, is that the right word, use of the word penultimate? The second last episode of the show ever. This is it. Bye. Uh, no. <laughs> Unfortunately for you, the show is going to carry on. But this is the second last episode of 2023. That is right, folks. It's December. It's nearly Christmas. Is it Christmas? I don't even know when this is coming out. Uh, and it is time to take a look back at the year past. Twelve months have gone by since uh, we did our first episode of, of the year. Um, we've done 40, 40 episodes this year. Well, 40 episodes, 12 months, hundreds, well, not hundreds, tens of thousands of streams. Uh, and it's all thanks to you guys. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I thought it might be a great idea to... Take a trip down memory lane, as it were. So we're going to look back at, in my opinion, what are some of the best episodes of the year 2023, uh, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll reminisce. We'll get all nostalgic. We might have a cry. Uh, you might laugh. You probably won't laugh. You might cry um, at how bad some of them are, uh, but you will learn something. Unless you've already watched or listened to these episodes in the past, uh, Maybe you've forgotten some of the information. So this is a great way to sink it back into your old Morgan. So <clears throat> kicking us off for this uh, first part of our 2023 Best Of series, uh, we're going to go back to the first episode released in 2023. And that is, of course, our Death in Yellowstone episode. Now, that this was a very in-depth episode. I'm not sure if I'm going to play the entire clip for you now or just part of it because I think... I think it was like an hour and a half long episode, um, but we'll see. Maybe it's maybe it's all just that good. Maybe none of it can be left on the scrapping room floor. Maybe it's all just gold. It's all golden mic material. Um, no, the Death in Yellowstone series, uh, similar to our Death in Glacier series that uh, we did recently, uh, it's inspired by a book. I cannot remember the name of the person who wrote the book. Hopefully, I mention it in the episode itself. Um, but it talks about all the you know human fatalities caused by animals in um, Yellowstone National Park, not just bears. Um, but also bison and uh, snakes and other stuff like that. But I think bison and uh, bears were the two big killers, literally and figuratively. They were big in stature and big in the death tolls as well. Um, it was the first episode of 2023, like I said. A lot of research went into this one. I remember using my entire um, December break to write the episode for this. Um, and yet it took a really long time. And th thankfully, you guys seem to really enjoy it. Um, there's a lot of information when Packy. There's some really brutal stories of some deaths. I remember 
one of the photographers, it was a, it was a guy who tried to got really close to a, to a bison <clears throat> and got gored, and I think his, like, spleen got torn out or something, um, I'll remember when we listen back to it. Uh, yeah, some really, really intense stories. A similar story uh, to what we reported in the Death in Glacier series a couple weeks ago um, with, with a, a photographer trying to get too close to a bear. And I'm pretty sure he captures one of his last moments on on, on, um, on film, uh, which is pretty terrifying. So there's lots of really great information in this episode, lots of great stories. And I think it's just a great way to start off our best of 2023 series. So let's just roll the tape. Here it is. The first episode of 2023, episode 41, I believe, Death in Yellowstone. A child has died in a particularly horrible fashion in Yellowstone National Park. He went off the boardwalk at a geyser basin and fell into a boiling hot spring. Our hearts suffer with the parents. But... We know there may be other deaths in the park this year from less rare instances, such as bear maulings. Death is a frequent visitor in raw nature, and Yellowstone Park, despite the cabins and the roads, is raw nature. The park is the untamed, unfenced wildlife and the amoral energy of thermal wonders. It cannot be treated lightly when it erupts in death. We've seen other visitors in the park who left the paths and barred walks. We've seen visitors in the park put their children on bears in order to take pictures. They were lucky. This park is not the Disneyland Rocky Mountain version, nor is it a zoo with moats and fences separating the wild and the domesticated. For all the trappings of men, it is wilderness. And the man who fails to accept it as such dies. Now, more money for rangers to enforce the park rules would help, but until that time, we urge all visitors and urge all Montana and Wyoming residents to warn visitors against and again to obey signs in the park and to remember that Yellowstone Park is wild. The park is raw nature, and it can kill. Billings Gazette, July 1st, 1970. America's first national park, Yellowstone National Park, was founded in 1872 and is mostly located in Wyoming. With millions of tourists each year, Yellowstone is still one of the nation's most visited national parks. Yellowstone has a length of approximately 3,500 miles and touches portions of Montana and Idaho. The largest concentration of geysers and hot springs on Earth are found in Yellowstone National Park, which is perched on top of a dormant volcano. Yellowstone National Park has over 50% of the world's hydrothermal features, giving the impression that the ground is on fire. Old Faithful, one of the most well-known natural marvels in the United States, is located in Yellowstone. Yellowstone National Park is home to hundreds of species of Native American wildlife, many of which can and have taken human life. However, there are two animals that cause the most destruction to human life that live within the park. Both are near mythical figures in Native American folklore, and both are massive in size and power. I'm of course talking about bears and bison. 
We've talked about bears on this show in detail before, but this is the first time a major story has involved the bison or the buffalo. So today with this story, we're going to start with the bison. Now, the book Death in Yellowstone posits that the American bison is a mythological figure to many Americans. Rather than viewing the buffalo as a real animal made of flesh and blood, people see it as a spiritual connection to the past, a symbol of a vanished history or a painting of a proud people. Many visitors to the park want to approach them to establish a link to their own frontier heritage. It's for these reasons that people seem to lose themselves around these animals and forget or straight up ignore the obvious dangers that they present. As of 2013, there have only been two confirmed fatalities of, of bison in the park. Compare this to seven deaths from bears, and you could assume that bison are not the biggest threat to humans in the park. However, experts maintain that the potential for injuries and deaths from bison in the park is much greater than it is for injuries and deaths from bears. There are around 4,000 bison that call Yellowstone National Park their home, compared to only 750 bears. As such, it is far more likely for a visitor to see and therefore approach a bison. Bison are massive animals that can weigh up to a thousand kilograms, and they are unpredictable, often belligerent creatures. They can grow as much as three meters long and almost two meters tall. They have a maximum running speed of 35 kilometers per hour and are extraordinarily powerful. There is one report of a bison in 1890 destroying a stagecoach, and park rangers have witnessed bison repeatedly charging snowmobiles in the winter months. While not a death on Yellowstone Park grounds, the following story is detailed in Death in Yellowstone and illustrates how even animal keepers can be tricked into thinking these animals are docile. On March 22, 1902, a 49-year-old Yellowstone poacher and animal keeper named Dick Rock, which, sorry, gotta say, great porn star name, Dick Rock was killed by one of his own bison near Henry's Lake just outside the park limits. He was attempting to show a friend of his how tame his bison had become, which also, now that I say it out loud, sounds kind of dirty. Several people had warned Dick that the bison would kill him, but he did not listen. On Saturday morning at 7am when Dick was feeding the bison, it became enraged and charged at him, pinning him against the corral, its horns piercing his body. Dick's loud screams brought several people from a nearby ranch as well as his wife. What they saw mortified them. Repeatedly, the bison pitched Dick's body up into the air and the bison gored with its horns every time he got to the ground. The bison ripped all the clothes from Dick's body and left him with 29 horn holes. An onlooker named May Gardner remembers that when they got Dick out of there, quote, his eyelids twitched for a time or two, and then he was gone. Buffalo Jones, in the book Lord of the Beasts, said of Dick Rock, A wild animal is the most dangerous of beasts. My old friend, Dick Rock, <laughs> he laughed at my advice and got killed by one of his three-year-old bulls. I told him they knew just well enough to kill him, and they did. 
The story of Dick Rock is a cautionary one, as are the two confirmed bison fatalities that occurred within the park's boundaries. Now, even though only two people have died as a result of contact from wild buffalo, dozens of people have been injured. Park bison injuries included at least 11 in 1983, 6 in 1984, 10 in 1985, 4 in 1986, 2 in 1987, 2 in 1988, none in 1989 and 1990, 4 in 91, 2 in 92, 2 in 93, and at least 3 in 1994. Since 1995, the park has improved its safety record greatly because between 1995 and 2012, human injuries from bison averaged only 0 to 5 per year. Many visitors who do get attacked by bison often attempt to sue the park. However, the National Park Service only has a legal duty to warn of hidden or obvious dangers. A lawsuit brought by a woman who was injured in 1984 ended with the plaintiff losing the case. Another dangerous situation that could have led to injury arose in 1982. A bison had fallen through the ice on the Yellowstone River in winter. Now, some well-meaning snowmobilers found it and stopped, and they attempted to save the animal with ropes and pulleys. A park ranger approached them and insisted that they stopped. This maddened the visitors who contacted news broadcaster Phil Harvey, who lambasted the ranger and the park service on his show. As sad as it is, the National Park Service's philosophy is not to interfere with natural processes, and the bison had fallen through the ice naturally. Even though the bison was going to die, the ranger was right to stop the snowmobilers, as no bison is going to react well to humans tying ropes around it and jerking it around, no matter how well-intentioned they are. In the spring of 1992, a 70-year-old man from Pittstown, New Jersey, was tossed 15 feet into the air by a buffalo. His leg was ripped open by the animal's horn when he got too close to it. Marvin Leslie Schrader, 30 years old, of Spokane, Washington, well, he became the first bison fatality within the actual park boundaries on July 12, 1971. Schrader and his wife and three children spotted a solitary bull buffalo lying down in a meadow just east of Rush Lake that day. Schrader walked to within 20 feet of it to take his picture. The one-ton bison stood up and charged him. It tossed him into the air more than 12 feet. The animal's horns ripped open the man's upper right abdomen and pierced his liver. With a large hole in his side, Schrader attempted unsuccessfully to rise. He then managed to lean up on one elbow and lay on the ground groaning for a few minutes while his wife and child watched him die. The bison eventually moved on. Bonnie Schrader later admitted that they'd been way too close to the bison. In the family's possession was the park's red danger pamphlet that warned visitors of wild animals, including bison. There were rumours that the Schrader family had been throwing rocks at the bison in order to try and get it to stand up. Many Yellowstone employees heard this story, including a tour guide. But it turns out these rumours are false. In reality, it was a small group of teenagers that had been throwing rocks at the bison just before the Schrader family arrived. We got the bison to stand up, said a small girl who was in the group. So, Schrader had not intentionally agitated the bull. Regardless, it was wrong of Marvin to approach the bull so closely. The second and final bison fatality occurred in 1983. 
A foreign visitor was gored to death on July 31st, 1983 in Hayden Valley because, according to newspaper articles from the time, he wanted to get his picture taken with a bison. Once again, the animal was a solitary bull. Elaine Jean-Jacques Dumont, 21 years old, from France, was having his picture taken about six feet away from the buffalo when it charged at him, tossing him 10 feet in the air. Elaine Dumont had his camera up and must have seen the charge through the viewfinder. He quickly turned left, attempting to dive out of the way, and the bison's horn caught him in the right kidney, ripping him open. A tour bus driver who had witnessed the attack remembered thinking, Oh my god, this guy's dead. The driver had recently pulled up at a popular spot to let his passengers out to look at some wildlife. He gave them the usual warning message over the bus's PA system, and when he saw Dumont walking towards the bull, he added over the intercom, And don't do what that guy's doing. A group of Japanese visitors took Dumont to a parking area where a park ranger saw him. At this point, Dumont was conscious and even talking. The ranger, named Mike Paflom, stated that the Frenchman was partially eviscerated. Dumont kept stating, I'm dying. I am dying. That's my French accent, but it sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <clears throat> oui, oui, I am dying. Oh, no. Three doctors treated Dumont. He had sustained a torn colon, punctured stomach, severely damaged spleen, and four broken ribs. Doctors believe that the spleen injury and resulting infection is probably what killed him in the end. Now, Dumont and Schrader are the only recorded fatalities from bison within the park, and Dick Rock was killed just outside the park's limits. However, injuries from attacks are abundant, and as long as people keep approaching them as if they're tame pets, they're unlikely to slow down. In 2022, dozens of people were gored by bison. First was a 25-year-old visitor from Ohio who was gored and tossed 10 feet in the air by a bison after getting within 10 feet of the animal on May 30th. The next incident took place on June 28, a week after Yellowstone reopened some portions to the public, when a 34-year-old tourist from Colorado was charged and gored near Giant Geyser. A day later, a 71-year-old visitor from Pennsylvania was gored by a bull bison near Storm Point at Yellowstone Lake when she inadvertently approached the animal. Yellowstone visitors should never approach bison or any wild animal. All Yellowstone animals are wild and potentially dangerous. We humans are only temporary visitors to Yellowstone, but the park is where the animals live. So, as the author of the book says, let's give them a break and give ourselves a break in the process, especially when the subject animal is a myth that can kill us. And speaking of other mythical animals, let's talk about bears. So, while injuries to people by bears are very common in Yellowstone, deaths are actually quite rare. In 1891, two large hotels in the park needed a place to throw their garbage, and so they created a nearby garbage dump. This attracted bears, and injuries started to occur. During the period between 1891 and 1973, 1-115 to 115 human injuries from bears occurred each year, mostly bitings or scratching. One of the earliest injuries occurred in June of 1888, when George R. Dow was chased by a grizzly bear. He attempted to climb up a tree to escape, but was grabbed by the leg and badly mauled. Another incident occurred in 1902, when R.E. Southwick attempted to pat a bear cub. Needless to say, the mother bear wasn't thrilled by this, and she tore him up. 
He was bitten a number of times, and the flesh was torn from his breast. One rib is broken, and it is feared his right lung is seriously injured. That's my impression of an 1888 doctor, by the way. Apparently, only Southwick's wife hammering on the bed with a branch saved his life. Now, in the book Death to Yellowstone, there are dozens and dozens of incidents of bear attacks that are detailed. If you want to read about those, I suggest finding the uh, finding the book and reading it. I'll link to it, I think, on Amazon uh, in the description of this. It's a great book. You should read it. I'm not going to have time to go through every single occurrence of a bear attack because if we did, this episode would be four hours long and I have things to do. Uh, but there are a couple stories that I found entertaining, uh, if not a little bit funny, um, in a morbid way. So this is one of the stories, and uh, it's written very funny in in the book. It's kind of um, well, it's almost like a script. And I am an actor, so uh, I will do some uh, some more voices for you. So here's uh, here's one story about a uh, a belligerent woman in the park and her puppy. Spoiler alert: This does not end well for the pup. Okay. <clears throat> May I release my dog from his leash? The woman asked. No, ma'am," said the ranger. Uh, deferrently. It's strictly against the rules. Oh, there seems to be rules against everything anyone wants to do in the park, she said with a petulant frown. Now, what possible reason can there be for not allowing my dog a little freedom? Poor Vaughn has been tied up all day. The dog's name is Vaughn, if you didn't hear. The ranger's strict training kept him from saying what he wanted to, but his face reddened at her tone. He began, Ah, lady, there are bears around here that might... She did not give him a chance to finish the sentence. Oh, if that's all that worries you, Vaughn won't hurt the bears. She reached for the snap of the dog's collar and unleashed him before she started the ranger... Before the startled ranger could utter another word of protest. The dog... (laughs) The dog bolted straight for an old black bear mother sitting at the edge of the forest some 50 yards away, her two cubs above her in the tree, lying on two large limbs. The old bear sat there calmly, her front legs braced in front of her, not seeming to notice the dog that had dashed madly towards her. She even inclined her head slightly the other way, as if to show how just a little of a shit this canine creature interested her. I'm embellishing here a little bit. The pup charged right up to the bear, fully expecting her to run. The bear sat motionless, and he he slowed for a quick turn in order to keep from running into her. At exactly that instant, the old bear went into action. Quicker than a cat, she struck at him with with one blow from her paw, sent him spinning with a broken back. She then called her cubs down and hurried into the woods. It happened so quickly that not one of the spectators moved for a few seconds. Then everyone rushed to the side of the dying dog. The owner, protesting tearfully, Why didn't you tell me? I can't understand why such terrible beasts are allowed to run at large. Why are they put where they can't do any harm? So that's a story of an innocent dog getting its back broken. Um, Like I said, hilarious, right? Uh, no, obviously sad for the dog, but that woman sucks. And uh, yeah, that's very sad. Another story, another um, dumb lady. And I've got to think of a new uh, new voice for this one. Um, okay, so this is another story about a lady who uh, liked to feed candy to a bear, which, hey, 
Darwin Award uh, nominee right there. Okay, <clears throat> lady, you mustn't do that. You've been told time and time again not to feed that bear. Oh, he won't hurt me, replied the lady. He's so cute, standing there. He's the gentlest bear in the park. Yes, I know asserted the ranger wearily, but even tame bears hurt people quite often. They don't mean to, it's always an accident, but the injury is just as bad. It's against the rules. Why can't the regulate why can't you just obey the regulations? Oh fuck the regulations <laughs> She actually said bother Oh oh bother the regulations said the lady scornfully you rangers i've just gone back into the other lady you rangers are always harping on regulations this bear is hungry look here i'll show you how eager he is to even get a small morsel of bread the ranger shook his head i really wish you would not feed that bear he said and rode away <laughs> Without waiting for the lady to demonstrate how hungry the pet bear was. This ranger is awesome. He just fucked off. He just he just dipped on out. Alright. Life was probably dull for this woman staying up all day in a camp with nothing much to do but admire the scenery. When a car drove up a few minutes after the ranger had left, she called to the people. Let me show you my bear's trick. He's just too cute for anything. They gathered around, and the woman held a piece of candy at a full arm's length above her head. The bear, a great black fellow, that's a weird way to write it, sure, rose on his hind feet and easily reached the candy. The woman backed away a few steps and offered another piece. The bear followed, walking on his hind legs, and took the candy as before. It was fun to make such a big fellow walk around and eat candy out of her hand. Everybody laughed and applauded. Well, such quaint creatures, these bears, exclaimed one of the ladies. Oh, it's a lady. She can have that voice, it's fine. Exclaimed one of the ladies from the automobile party. So tame and ever gentle. <laughs> they watched until the lady tired of the game. She stood directly in front of the bear, facing him, but offering no more candy. Go away now, she ordered. No more candy for you today. She did not move, and the bear dropped down on all fours. As he dropped down, he put out his, four, his front feet towards her, much as he would to a tree or any other convenient object to ease his descent. The woman screamed as his paws touched her shoulders. His claws, sharp as knives seeking support, ripped through her clothing and skin. They tore deep cuts a foot long across her breasts, and blood spurted from them. The woman fainted almost instantly. The bear backed away and disappeared in the pandemonium that ensued. One of the men ordered an ambulance by telephone. He then drove post-haste to a ranger station. There, the apprehensive ranger heard the old familiar tale. Hey, something terrible just happened. A bear just tore the titties off a woman. He killed the bear. He must be killed. He is a dangerous beast. Kill that wicked bear. Yeah, so the story went, told by very people who had, but a few minutes ago, thought the bear was cute. So, those are just a couple of fun little stories. That There was one about a dog dying and one about a woman losing her breasts. Um, yeah. 
So as stated before, there have only been seven confirmed fatalities from bear attacks in Yellowstone National Park since its inception. The book notes a few stories that may have happened, but these stories lack credible sources and information to back them up. So today, I'm just going to cover the seven that did definitely occur. If you want to read about the other stories, definitely go and read the book. Uh, we're going to start with the first confirmed death that ever happened from a, from a bear in uh, Yellowstone National Park. His name was Frank Welch. So, the first reported human mortality from a bear happened in Yellowstone in 1916. On September 8, 1916, a grizzly bear, dubbed Old Two Toes, killed Frank Welch, who was 61 years old, a government teamster. He was delivering hay and oats to a road camp at Sylvan Pasture. Welsh and two other labourers were camping at Ten Mile Spring at Turbid Lake at the time of the event. Welsh was sleeping beneath the cart with another one of the labourers, and one of the other labourers was on top of them. Not on top of them, on top of the, the cart. You get me. Now, the bear, which had previously caused at least two injuries at a fishing bridge, arrived at Welch's camp at approximately 1am. The bear woke up Mr. Delvin, who was sleeping next to Welch, under the wagon. Delvin shouted, tossed some bedding at the bear, and then watched the bear seize Welch as he climbed on top of the wagon. The other two men tossed lunchboxes at the bear, which then let Welch go. Welch then attempted to jump on top of the wagon, but the bear charged him and dragged him down. The two men were successful in scaring the bear away, but when Welch attempted to climb back aboard the wagon, it seized him for the third and final time. It was presumable that during this last attack that the bear damaged Mr. Welch so badly around the left shoulder as well as on his side and abdomen. Welch's left side had two ribs cracked and muscles ripped away. His left arm had been ripped and horribly mutilated at the shoulder. He had two or three deep slashes across his right leg, and the bear's claws had perforated a lung from behind. The bear had reportedly stripped the flesh off one of Welch's arms, chewed through one of his lungs, and partially disemboweled him, according to reports of the tale. Now, the injured Mr. Welch was eventually transferred to Fort Yellowstone, where he unfortunately died at 8.10pm on September 11th. <gasps> September 11th. Coincidence? Later, the bear returned to munch on the hay surrounding Welch's wagon. Fred Muse and his road camp crew had set up a bear trap. They, this is good, they piled debris or rubbish in front of an upturned barrel with a stick of dynamite in its opening. The dynamite was then fused to an electric battery and when the bear started eating the young, the, the teamsters blew him up, breaking every bone in his body. That's a quote, that's a direct quote from one of them. Frank Welch, oh this is a wild part of the story and I'm actually very concerned at the people from like the 18th from the 1910s frank welch was apparently sleeping on a slab of bacon at the time of the occurrence according to horace albright who was one of the creators of the new national park service in 1916 now the author says that such a declaration delivered 46 years after the occurrence would normally not be trustworthy According, though, to a third newspaper version, one of the other men tried to divert the bear by tossing bits of bacon at it, and the bear briefly stopped attacking to eat the bacon. So, bacon was present. Now, apparently, Welch slept with bacon under his pillow every night, which explains the bear's approach. Uh, the man was most likely uh, provoked when the bear touched him, and then the 
bear got scared, and so it appears that the bacon combined with Walter's resistance is what killed him. Today, a lone wooden headstone in Mammoth Soldiers Cemetery marks Walter's burial. It's the only marker that's made of wood in that cemetery, and it's very badly eroded and should be rebuilt so that we do not lose significant this significant grave site accidentally, says the author. Now, the second human fatality in the park occurred in August 23, 1942. Martha Hansen, 45 years old, and four other people were staying in a cabin named Cabin 381 of the Old Faithful Cabin Camp on the night of August 22nd. Hansen, who was a nurse from Twin Falls, Idaho, left the cabin at 1.45 a.m. on her way to the woman's restroom. A huge brown or grey bear confronted her as she rounded the corner of the cabin. When the woman attempted to turn and escape, the bear seized her and dragged her several steps, causing severe neck and head injuries. Hansen suffered a six-deep-inch incision from the top of her head to the base of her neck, another wound stretching from her nose to her right cheek, three more facial, facial lacerations, and a serious bite behind her left ear. The majority of her neck muscles had been ripped loose. Hansen's screams drew her roommate, Emily Heed, to, I think that's how it's pronounced, Heed, to the scene, uh, but she quickly left when the bear turned on her. Hearing the screams, many other tourists succeeded in scaring the bear away by hurling sticks of wood at it. An ambulance came a few hours later to bring Hansen to Mammoth Hospital, but she had lost a lot of blood and died on August 27th. Traveling with Hansen was F.E. Milner, and F.E. Milner stated that the bear involved was a big brown that had been feeding out of garbage cans near the cabin during the day. The cause of the bear attack on Martha Hansen was never determined, however, it might be claimed that this episode falls under the heading of a sudden encounter, also known as a surprised bear. A surprised grizzly bear is a deadly animal, which is why backpackers and trekkers in Yellowstone are advised to make noise. And like virtually all of the bears implicated in human deaths in Yellowstone, this bear was acclimated to human meals. Two years later, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt approved legislation providing $1,894.95 in compensation to Christine Hansen, Martha's mother. A prior legislative measure had provided money to a Yellowstone Park tourist for a bear injury, that of Margaret Constable, who got $10,000 for bear injuries in 1929. In addition, the park settled for a $2,000 tort suit for a bear bite in 1958. Payment, for, payment of cash through these compensation bills may have been a poor precedent setting for the government as a paper trail was formed without the need for fact-finding litigation. Getting the ear of a congressman was the only way an, angry, an aggrieved party could gain compensation until Congress created the Federal Tort Claims Acts in 1946 because the federal government enjoyed immunity from such actions previous to that time. Uh, now, the author goes into a lot of detail uh, soon about the danger of these legal cases, people suing over animal bites and, you know, not taking responsibility for themselves and courts uh, essentially, um, you know, not knowing all the details and making these uh, legislative changes that really can affect the park. Uh, and I'm not going to go into a lot of that. Um, if you, again, if you want to read that, you can go and read the book. Um, but the next fatality had a huge impact um, in terms of like legal cases. Um, <clears throat> so, 
Uh, however, following the park's third human tragedy involving a bear, the Harry Walker case, this established compensation method proved ineffective for private claimants. Instead, the subsequent litigation was lengthy, complicated, and costly. Harry Eugene Walker, 25, of Anniston, Alabama, and his friend Philip Bradbury, nicknamed Crow, hitchhiked into Yellowstone National Park from the North Gate on Friday, June 23, 1972. Vicky Schlitt, a old faithful inn chambermaid, gave them a ride. They did not get the normal warning material handed out to arriving guests because they were hitchhiking. Schlitt, on the other hand, stated afterwards in an investigation that she had warned the men of bears and advised them to go to the ranger station. When Walker and Bradbury arrived at Old Faithful, they did something very stupid. They strolled across the thermal region boardwalks and set up an illegal tent on a forested slope above Grand Geyser. Madison Junction, 16 miles distant, was the nearest authorized campsite. Despite Schlitt's uh, cautions, they went forward with it. Walker and Bradbury were also informed by an old faithful acquaintance that they were camping illegally, but they remained there on Friday night and all day Saturday. On Saturday night, June 24th, the two men drank at Old Faithful Inn before returning to their tent. At the camp, it was early Sunday morning. They were startled to find a grizzly bear digging through the food they had left spread all around their unauthorized campground. The food was the first draw, and the sudden meeting with the two men evidently is what scared the bear, prompting it to defend its poo its food supply. Pood supply. Nice. When Bradby noticed the bear charging barely five feet away, he dived to his left and tumbled down an embankment. Walker shone his spotlight at the bear and at the same at the same moment. While Bradby raced screaming across the thermal region, it charged Walker, pulling him away. Now, the author notes, in retrospect, Bradbury is very fortunate to have not fallen in a hot spring and drowned or burned to death in the midst of his panic. Walker screamed, help me, crow, help me. And then there was stillness. Bradbury collapsed on the floor of the old faithful inn, yelling, bear, bear, a bear has my body. Walker's corpse was discovered at 5 a.m. by rangers. The bear had eaten about a quarter of it. Walker died of asphyxiation as a result of extensive tracheal injury. Furthermore, his entire pelvic area was gone. A grizzly bear was later captured, killed, and studied there. Human hairs were discovered on his claws and in its digestive tract. Walker was recognized as the owner of these items. The bear was a 20-something-year-old sow weighing 232 pounds, and he had a history of rubbish eating. Some onlookers suspected that the, er that the elderly sow's injuries to her foot pads and teeth had something to do with the attack. Walker's parents filed a lawsuit against the National Park Service and Federal District Court in California, arguing that he had not been sufficiently informed of the hazard and was awarded $87,417.67 in damages. The National Park Service filed an appeal and the verdict was overturned. The family attempted to reclaim the funds through legislative action, uh, as did the Hansons previously, but they were unsuccessful. The Walker event was the final nail in the coffin for allowing bears to feed along Yellowstone's roadways. The park's final open pit rubbish dumping was closed on in 1970 at Trout Creek, and now the National Park Service increased the transportation they had began in order to wean all roadside beggar bears off the human food diets. When human goods are included, normally reclusive bears sometimes outgrow their fear of men. 
the NPS realized this, uh, realized that a more natural bear is a less dangerous bear. The twin assaults in Glacier National Park in 1967, as recorded in the book Night of the Grizzlies, had already established that fact in the minds of park management, and now Yellowstone had its own evidence. In 1984, the park's fourth human fatality with a bear occurred. It was a young woman from Switzerland this time. Ranger Gary Youngblood was on duty at Canyon Ranger Station on July 29, 1984, when a female hiker entered the office. She was approximately five, uh, five feet five inches tall and weighed about 120 pounds with black shoulder-length hair. Youngblood gave the lady a backpacking permit for the night of July 10th at Site 5B1, north of Fern Lake. He warned her against trekking alone in Yellowstone Territory, as well as telling her about the bears in the area. Brigitte Claudia Friedenhagen, 25, of Basel, Switzerland, seemed clever and spoke near-perfect English according to Youngblood. 42, District Ranger John Lounsbury, who was seated in the adjacent office, recalls Youngblood providing her with valuable bear information. Brigitte's brother, Andreas Friedenhagen, reported to Lake Area, uh, Lake Area Ranger Mark Marshall on July 31st at 6pm that his sister had failed to meet him and his wife at the Pelican Trailhead as planned. A search began with two people trekking through Pelican Valley, and Ranger Marshall began a horseback sweep of the area the next morning. Marshall arrived at Brigitte's tent about 10.30am. Something was there that frightened his horse. The horse would only allow him to come within 20 feet of the tent. He saw immediately that the tent flap had rip marks at the door and discovered an undisturbed sleeping pad parker and other stuff inside. As I approached the tent, Marshall wrote, I observed fragments of hair and scalp as well as a few small chunks of muscle, bone, and tissue. There was a sleeping bag nearby. He radioed for help before continuing his hunt for Brigitte. He didn't find her, but what he did discover was her food storage 30 yards away. A bear had torn it down and the food had been consumed in part. Ranger Dave Spirites and Tim Blank from the Lake Ranger Station were helicoptered to the spot at 12.07pm and began a quick investigation of the area. The rangers were disheartened when they discovered a piece of Brigitte's lip near the sleeping bag. They looked for clues in the region between the route and the lake because recent thunder showers had washed away any evidence the rangers swept north for approximately a quarter mile. They discovered a bloodied item of clothing around 12.57pm. A trail of bloody clothes and human tissue led them from there to discover Brigitte Fregenhardt's body, 258 feet from her tent. The bear had devoured a large portion of it. The rangers resumed their inquiries shaken by their discoveries. The blood on the tent and the puncture in the woman's sleeping bag suggested that the bear had torn the tent and pulled her out while she slept, either by the left side of her neck or by the top of her head. There was no trace of a struggle, her hiking clothes were neatly folded inside the tent and everything else was undisturbed. She either slipped out or was dragged out from her sleeping bag six feet outside. Rangers discovered a rectangle of discoloured grass about 20 feet northwest of the tent where significant blood and tissue had been dropped, and this was determined to be the location where Frieden Friedenhagen died. Because she was struck at the neck and face first, Rangers concluded that she died swiftly, perhaps without even waking up. 
The bear had climbed 12 feet up a tree to reach the woman's food cache, exactly the same manner in which she had placed it. Both of her climbing marks and the bear's claw prints were visible. The majority of the food stockpile had been consumed. The tree climbing marks and other evidence pointed to a light-coloured sub-adult male grizzly. The rangers and autopsy personnel tried to piece together what had occurred. Friedenhagen had been gone Sorry, Friedenhagen had gone 8.5 miles, camped many miles short of her designated campsite, heated water for tea, and dined on a pre-cooked or cold meal. She had hung her food properly, organized in her clothing and other belongings, climbed into her sleeping bag with her feet facing east and her head towards the lake, and was obviously asleep when the assault happened sometime after 10.30pm on July 29th. The bear was never found nor recognized. It likely fled the scene within 12 hours, since the body's, the woman's body was not semi-buried, as feeding grizzlies sometimes do, and there was no scat around the body. The rangers discovered uh, feces containing human bones many kilometers north and east of the location, and concluded that the bear had returned to feast on July 31st. Rain had ruined most of the evidence, in fact. It was most likely raining at the time of the attack or immediately thereafter. Now, in the end, no one knew for certain what the cause of this incident was. The victim had not been menstruating at the time. The tent did include two-thirds of a 100-gram chocolate bar wrapped in a pack. Lip salve, microrine tablets, and a butane cigarette lighter were also among other potentially stinky objects in the tent. If the bear was drawn to these goods, it may have felt safe because Friedenhagen was hiking alone, which is frowned upon in Yellowstone territory and was perhaps her worst error. Even though significant thunder and lightning had been reported in the region for several days prior, no one knew what caused the onslaught. The woman's hanging of her food, possession of four bear-warning leaflets supplied to her by Ranger Youngblood, bear bells in her tent, and signing at a trail register where three bear-warning signs were posted, all proved to her knowledge of care and of sorry knowledge and care for bear precautions. In reality, when searching through Brigitte's possession on August 2nd, her brother and sister discovered a notebook in which Brigitte had written a diary-style message entry at the time at the campsite. The entry mentioned that she had taken all possible measures. William J. Teskinski, like Frittenhagen, was alone when a Yellowstone Park grizzly slaughtered him on or about October 4th, 1986. Tosinski, a 38-year-old auto mechanic from the Great Falls, Montana, was an ardent wildlife photographer as well as an accomplished woodsman and hunter. Chief Ranger Dan Shawley of Yellowstone National Park had described him as being cocky, self-assured, and used to obtaining what he wanted. He had been described as being able to keep up with most people in his outdoor activities. In fact, he typically traveled alone since he believed most people couldn't keep up. His attitude towards hiking alone proved to be his undoing. Tosinski had some success in selling his nature photography, but he hadn't yet phot photographed a bear, and he was desperate to do so. On or around October 4th, Tosinski became aware of a grizzly bear, Bear 59 in park terminology, frequenting the Otter Creek region near the Yellowstone River. Tosinski began stalking the bear alone, leaving his car in a pullout on the main road and carrying his camera and tripod. And we'll never know how or when he approached the sow grizzly. However, his dying moments must have been terrifying as he most certainly battled, at least for a short amount of time. 
Bear 59 was a semi-habituated bear, meaning it had some interaction with humans and human foods. But she'd never approached a human aggressively before. She had two cubs when the park transferred her to Cub Creek earlier that season, but they were gone by October. She was also extremely hyperphagic, anxious to gain weight before the winter. Tosinski, it appears, stepped the line between being a nuisance photographer and being a possible threat or food source. Perhaps it was a surprise bear or an unusual case of predation. We just don't know. The park began checking on Tosinski after his blue automobile had been parked at Otter Creek Pullout for many days. Ranger Alice Seebecker, armed with a license plate, called Tosinski's Great Falls residence and discovered that he had skipped work. Ranger Tom Olive explored the area on horseback on October 6th, but discovered nothing. After speaking with bear expert Steve French, Ranger Jeff Henry determined that Bear 59 had been in the region at least since October 4th. Indeed, Jeff had been seen, uh, Jeff had seen her on October 1st at Lee Hardy's Rapids. Now, as a result, on October 7th, District Ranger John Lounsbury and Ranger Mona Devine, who were subsequently joined by Jeff Henry, Tom Olive, Dick Devine, and Joe Fowler, launched a serious search along Otter Creek. Mona Devine and John Lounsbury noticed Bear 57, uh, 59 eating something from the top of a small hill. Henry and Fowler followed them into the old Otter Creek campsite. Lounsbury recalls being on the ridge overlooking what we now call Tesinski Meadow with his binoculars. He immediately saw Bear 59 with a human limb in her jaws and a tennis shoe on it in the enhanced image. He recognized at this time that they had most likely discovered Tesinski. Jeff Henry spotted the legs on the ground via his rifle sight and realized the bear was feasting on Tistinsky. Divine noticed it as well, and Lounsbury had previously noticed it. Because a grizzly was eating in the vicinity, the rangers were terrified. Are you in a position to eliminate that bear? said bear specialist Gary Brown over their radios. Yes, we are, Lounsbury said. Brown issued the order, and Ranger Fowler shot the bear two times. The rangers walked in the area, still armed with shotguns and rifles. Cautiously, Jeff Henry recalls, recalls a classic Karas feeding scenario with coyotes, ravens, and magpies all waiting on the outskirts for their turns. One of those ravens had croaked earlier, jolting John Lounsbury out of his daydream and forcing him to refocus on his surroundings. The gang entered a tiny field about a quarter of a mile from the, from the main road and discovered Tosinski's remains. And remains is what they were. Tosinski's legs and pelvic regions were all that remained on the ground. His entire upper body was gone. Jeff recalls thinking it seemed as if someone had chainsawed him in half at the belt. Tosinski's camera and tripod were still lying out. The enormous amount of blood recovered later around the collars of Tosinski's jacket and shirt indicated that the bear had gone from his neck from the start. Tosinski's entire neck was gone, which is most likely why the cause of his which was most likely the cause of his death and was allegedly inflicted as he escaped. Bear 59 probably didn't take too long to rip him up and bury portions of him nearby for later feasting. Tosinski's skull was recovered in a burial mound. Now, the camera footage had no bear image. Jeff Henry speculated from uh, his knowledge that Bear 59 was wearing a radio collar that would have stopped Tosinski from attempting a turn headshot with the radio collar hidden. 
Furthermore, the tripod was angled down as if the camera was pointing at somewhere between 12 to 15 feet away. Tostinsky's camera also featured a small lens rather than a long lens. The final image on his film roll had been termed an unrecognizable black blob, probably an out-of-focus close-up of the Earth. Whatever he was focusing on, Henry, a seasoned photographer, says, it was not quite clear. What the rangers discovered entwined on a stagebrush plant just above Teskinski's tripod was equally intriguing. It was a tube-shaped rubber elk bugle. Rangers discovered blood on its cord as well as blood on the sagebrush from where it had been grabbed. Kerry Gunther, a bear expert, believes William Tostinsky may have sounded the elk bugle to persuade the bear to lift its head from foraging, causing the animal to rush. Back in 1986, it was not widely known as it is today that elk bugles can lead to bears, grizzly or black bears, to a predatory mode. Gunther adds, thus it is very possible that the elk cry placed the bear in a predatory mindset. A park board inquiry ruled that Tosinski was killed because he was attempting to photograph a grizzly bear at close range, and that the animal located near his remains was likely the one that killed him. Tosinski most likely turned around and raced towards the road, but the bear grabbed him from the neck from behind and killed him. The bear then dragged Tosinski back across the camera tripod, the bear's body, or Tosinski's body, bending one of the legs of the tripod, leaving a considerable quantity of blood in the drag path. To Siskinski's last resting spot, according to Jeff, the bear had complete the bear had completed its task as one of nature's finest feeding machines. Following the death of William Tosinski in 1986, there were no further human fatalities from bears in Yellowstone National Park for the next 26 years, but individual injuries happened on occasion. Then, in 2011, two tourists to the area were killed by grizzlies in separate incidents. Never previously in the park had two documented bear-related human deaths occurred in a single season. On July 5, 2011, Brian and Marilyn Matayoshi of Torrance, California, entered the park through the south entrance, spent the first day viewing Old Faithful, then returned to Grant Village to camp. It was their fourth visit to Yellowstone, but they'd still never seen a bear before. On July 6th, they travelled to Canyon for hiking, with Brian insisting on trekking on an unpaved park path. They parked at the Wapiti Trailhead near Chitten Bridge, Chittenden Bridge and started hiking at 9.30am. The temperature was in the mid-70s and the sky was largely clear. Brian, 57 years old, and Marilyn went past the NPS signboard, which stated, Danger, you are entering bear country, and included directions on what to do if they met a bear. A warning on the same huge board said, Warning, July 3rd, 2011. Bear frequenting area. There is no assurance of your safety when hiking or camping in bear territory. Brian and Marilyn did not have bear spray. Because the Howard Eaton Trail to the south was closed due to, an active, due to an active wolf den, they picked the Clear Lake Trail and went east to the lake. They then returned to the Clear Lake slash Wapiti Lake Trail junction and continued on the Wapiti Lake Trail south and east. Around 10am near Wapiti, uh, they came across a photographer who pointed out a grizzly sow and two of her bear cubs feeding in a meadow to the south. He gave them his binoculars to look at the bears but they appeared far away, like boulders in the field, according to Marilyn. They stood there for a few minutes, observing the bears, taking some photos, before Brian and Marilyn continued on their journey. They arrived at a body of water that she didn't recognise and turned around at 10.40am. They saw no other hikers, as is usual in Yellowstone. 
only 1.4 miles from the Wapiti trailhead and in an open area, they witnessed three bears 100 yards distant. It was a little patchwork of meadows and dry thermal zones crisscrossed and surrounded by tree fringes. Marilyn believed that Brian noticed the sow first, but she couldn't recall if he saw the cubs. They immediately turned around and began walking east into the forest, frequently checking back to see if the bears were there. When Marilyn noticed the sow's head pop up dangerously close to them, she cautioned Brian. When the bear charged at them, Brian cried, RUN! Marilyn subsequently told rangers that they yelled and shouted at this moment. She heard Brian call out as they were sprinting into a tree corridor between two tiny pastures. She turned in time to witness the bear attack him as he was standing, tugging him and knocking him down. Bear cubs were growling behind their mother, but she didn't see any more. Marilyn found her way down to several downed trees with projecting branches that provided some shelter. She had no idea how she ended up on the ground. As she struggled to get her bearings, she noticed the bear at Brian's body, staring at her. She knelt again, covering her head or neck with her arms and hands. The bear swiftly approached her, and she felt the terror of it tugging on her backpack. It pulled her off the ground with her backpack before dropping her. It was gone in an instant. The incident happened between 10.45 and 10.51 a.m., lasted less than a minute, and the two people ran more than 173 yards from where they initially noticed the bears. Marilyn staggered up to her husband, noticed that he was badly bleeding, and considered using a jacket as a tourniquet on his leg. She heard a long sigh escape from Brian, and she subsequently told police that she knew at this moment her husband was dead. She somehow found the presence of mind to drape two dark-colored coats over him. It had occurred to her that the bear may still be close, so she started shouting for assistance. Other hikers in the area reported hearing the attack. Four British hikers heard the bear roar, and male and female voices yelling and screaming to the west of where Brian and Marilyn were last seen. To their east, the photographer they had met earlier, who was now conversing with another father and two sons, heard a roar, followed by a man yelling quickly, and then a lady crying. The roar rage and scream lasted for about five to ten seconds according to the photographer fearing for his two boys and hoping to use them to notify the rangers the father handed them bear spray and sent them west towards the trailhead he chose to stay with the photographer since he was a trauma surgeon when the two lads got a mobile service while trekking they contacted 911 and the communication center of the park received the call at about 10:51 a.m the boys also encountered a huge trekking party and informed them of the presence of bears in the area. That party proceeded east to the father and photographer who verified an event of some sort. A bigger gathering of people moved towards the source of the sounds. Several members of the gathering screamed, asking if anyone needed assistance, and Marilyn responded, Help! My husband is dead! At 11.15am, the father contacted 911 after obtaining a mobile signal. Marilyn also attempted to call 911 a few minutes later at 11.09am, and several times after that, but it had been unsuccessful. Officials at Mammoth had warned the father that aid would be shortly there, and that he should not enter the site ahead of them, but rather wait for the rangers who were already trekking close. Meanwhile, Marilyn had already started heading west. Rangers first attributed Brian's death to penetrating and blunt force wounds caused by grizzly bear mauling. Later, detectives revealed that Brian Matayoshi had a femoral artery bite puncture, a large ovulation of his forehead extending into his scalp, and perhaps a deadly blunt force injury to the chest or abdomen, and several biting and clawing injuries. There was no autopsy, but a doctor informed one investigator that in one or two minutes, the person might bleed out internally from the femoral artery, the spleen, or the liver, or both. 
The blunt impact of the bear hitting Matayoshi and knocking him down to the ground may have been enough force for a fatal crushing injury to the chest or abdomen, he added. The park's second human fatality in a single summer and the final one on record occurred on August 25th, 2011, and it left Yellowstone officials, visitors, and supporters aghast and dispirited. The usual media scaremongering occurred with large headlines that made environmentalists fear for both the park and the bears. One of them read, Another hiker found dead in Yellowstone after bear mauling, one month after park officials refused to hunt grizzly that killed a California man. John Lawrence Wallace, 59 years old, of Chassel, Michigan, had been warned about the dangers presented by grizzly bears in Yellowstone, but told an official who was giving him the warnings at a campground that he was a grizzly expert who did not need the safety lecture. Wallace was a trained librarian who had spent 18 years working at Portage Lake District Library, Houghton, in Michigan, and he was also the building's superintendent there. Friends called him a kind and gentle individual who loved books and being outdoors. A family member stated that he had left a voicemail for them earlier, saying that being in Yellowstone was like being in heaven. John Wallace arrived alone in Yellowstone on August 24, 2011, and camped at the Canyon Village Campground, where he received standard bear warnings from a campground official and made the statement noted earlier. The next morning, he parked his green jeep at the trailhead in Hayden Valley, uh, near Autumn Creek, and began hiking on the Mary Mountain Trail. A sign at the trailhead warned hikers that they were entering bear country, encouraged to carry bear spray, and discouraged hiking alone. Wallace carried no bear spray, and he was hiking alone. He proceeded southwesterly through the open meadows of grass and sagebrush with only patches of timber for about six miles. Because Hayden Valley is an area that is historically known for high numbers of grizzly bears, only day hiking is permitted there with no overnight camping allowed. Wallace passed by an active bison carcass at Violet Creek, only 1.5 miles from the later incident site. If he had seen it, it should have made him very nervous. Three days earlier, a hiker there had seen nine different grizzly bears feeding on it, but did not report this until after the Wallace incident. Rangers found a second carcass only 361 yards from the incident site, along with 16 bear day beds around it. John Wallace stopped to eat an energy bar, take a drink of water, or get something out of his backpack that was later not found in his back. Probably sitting on a log in his last moments, he must have instinctively raised one or both of his hands because there were bite marks on his right hand, large areas of bruising on his left arm, and scratches, lacerations, and punctures on his right forearm, all with self-defense, all common with self-defense when facing a bear. But these would have occurred after the bear had already hit him because ominously, wounds to his neck and back suggested that the bear came from behind. It probably took very little time for Wallace to die from blood loss. The bear then fed upon him and caged his body in a partial burial. The following morning, another park visitor, a retired fisheries professor, and his daughter arrived at the same trailhead at 7.30am and began hiking up the same trail. At a point on the trail at nearly six miles after three hours of hiking, the daughter saw birds circling in the air above and then observed a day pack and water bottle containing pinkish liquid. She walked closer to these objects and suddenly saw parts of a human body. She saw both legs below the knees with boots on the trail and a portion of one arm nearby. The body was oriented at 90 degrees to the trail and most of it was covered with dirt and debris. Looking at the head, she noted the hair stood up on the back of his neck and that was obvious that the person was deceased. Fearing that there was a bear nearby, she and her father instantly turned around and hiked back down to the trailhead. 
10 minutes down the trail, they met two men in their 20s and told them that there was a body ahead. The two hikers continued on after this warning, but apparently turned around later. At the trailhead, the father and his daughter noticed a green jeep parked there and went to the Canyon Backcountry office at 1.30pm to report the body. A helicopter dropped five ranges two miles west of the incident site and they began hiking east. About a mile west of the incident site, they found an adult grizzly tracks and those of one cub. At 6pm, they encountered Wallace's body lying on his left hip and back, partially buried in the manner consistent with the food caching behavior of a bear. The body had been partially consumed. 12.5 meters to the southwest, the rangers found a large blood spot and a piece of boxer short next to the log Wallace had been sitting on, Sand's backpack, when he was surprised by his bear. To the west was a bloody trail in grass and bloody footprints on logs apparently made by at least one departing bear and probably also a cub. Spookiest of all were the fact that Wallace's orange backpack, rain jacket, long sleeve shirt and lunch container were all on top of his body, apparently placed there by the bear in part of his caching activity. Two water bottles, one empty and one three quarters full, were also found nearby. The lunch had not been consumed, indicating the attack occurred during the morning of August 25th. A hard rain with hail that afternoon had obliterated much of the bear's tracks around the trail and probably a lot of the DNA evidence as well. The rangers collected hair for DNA analysis from the body, from broken branches on logs and nearby, and from the soil in the cache pile. They collected saliva from bright wounds on the body and collected scat from five scat piles, later identified as grizzly scat. Over the next six weeks, the NPS set bear traps in 10 locations, making 25 captures of 13 individual bears for examination, for examination and DNA analysis. Telling was the fact that DNA from two of the scat piles a few yards from Wallace's body matched that of the female bear and one of her cubs collected on July 6th from the death site of Brian Matayoshi. On September 28th, rangers captured a bear that they called the Wapiti Sow and captured its cubs the next day. Its DNA not only matched that from the scat pile near John Wallace, but also matched hair stuck in Brian Matayoshi's sunglasses. Although the final report concluded that the Wapiti Sow and one or both of her offspring probably fed on Wallace, the bear that actually killed him may not have been that sow, because at least four different grizzly bears were in the area of the body, and at least nine bears have been in the general area. Nor was there any clear evidence as to whether the bear attack was defensive in nature. On October 2nd, 2011, rangers killed the 250-pound Wapiti sow based on three factors. One, DNA confirmed that she and at least one of her cubs were present at Wallace's body. Two, she may have been the bear that attacked and killed Wallace. And three, members of this family group were very likely involved in consumption of the body. The reasons for the seven incidents are complicated and overlapping, insofar that we can never really completely understand the reasons for a bear attack. Yet concrete patterns do arise from these incidents. Three of them, Hanson, Walker, particularly Matayoshi, and possibly Wallace, involved the bear being surprised, resulting in a sudden encounter. At least one involved getting too close and thus becoming a perceived threat to Sinsky or possibly Wallace, and four were probably related to bears conditioned to human foods, Welch, Hansen, Friedenhagen, and Walker. Causation in the Friedenhagen event is difficult to determine, however, it may be entailed to a habituated bear, certain odors, and traveling alone. The Walker event might potentially have been caused by a bear defending its food supply, and the Welch and Walker bear attacks could have been responding to past injuries. Not only was there a surprise bear in the Matayoshi event, but there was also a bear defending her cubs. 
the Wallace event featured at least two of the big three threats, as well as hiking alone. Now here we see the rationale for the National Park Service's advice for trekkers about creating noise, aka don't hike silently, never approaching bears or other animals, near uh, never hiking alone and never feeding bears. Furthermore, when cubs or food sources are available, one must be extra cautious. The worst case scenario for a hiker in Yellowstone National Park who comes across a bear is that it is eating on a corpse and it has cubs. In this final scenario, they do not expect to see you back at the trailhead. The author ends the article on the bear attacks by asking, how does one avoid becoming the next fa fatal human death in bear country? And the answer is quite simple. It's by following all the regulations laid out by the experts. Boy, that was a long one, wasn't it? But I think it was worth it. It was nice listening back. Wow, things have changed. It's been, it, it feels like such a long time since we recorded that. And it has been in some ways. It feels more than 12 months, if I'm being completely honest. It feels like it's been, well, 13 months, but it, it has not. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, yeah, Death in Yellowstone, one of my favorite episodes of the year for sure. I think in terms of the quality of research, definitely in the top five episodes we've we've ever recorded. Um, and, and absolutely one of my favorites. So I'm glad we could revisit that one. Uh, we're going to move on to another one of my favorite episodes. This one is episode, oh God, what episode was it? I can't remember. I will try to find the numbers for you. Um, I believe this one was episode 47, so six episodes after the Yellowstone, we did an episode called Deadliest Killers in Each State, USA edition. So we did this uh, kind of series twice, we did it for the USA and we did it for uh, Australia and New Zealand as well. The premise of this episode and the other episode about Australia and New Zealand was to go through alphabetically each state in the United States and figure out what the most deadly animal was. And we... We did a little bit of creative licensing here, I think, um, because if you are strictly like, you know, j just base it just off the pure numbers of people who die, like nine times out of 10, it's a similar animal. It, it was like, it's a domestic dog or it's like bees or ants or something, or something not particularly exciting. So we did a little bit of artistic license, um, and we kind of, you know, left those off, off the list for a few of them. Some of them, that was just the obvious answer. But for some, they were more interesting. Like, I I think I remember Oklahoma. I, I, I don't want to spoil it if you haven't listened to it. But I remember Oklahoma being a really weird, interesting animal. <laughs> not one that you would expect. Definitely not a native animal. Um, yeah, and it, this was a great episode. I like this format. We've only done it. We only did it, like, twice. We did it for the USA and for Australia and New Zealand, and I'm pretty sure I just counted New Zealand as a state of Australia, which they do not like. They don't like that. I absolutely do not like that. Um, but we should go back and, and uh, do that again. I'm, I've been thinking maybe an episode for next year could be like, what's the deadliest animal in each um, European country or each, you know, uh, you know, uh, province in Canada or something like that. That might be really interesting. Or each each country in Asia or Africa as well. Africa would be a really good one. I just think that there's a lot of countries in Africa. Although, is it more than there are states in America? Are there more than 50 countries in Africa? I'm going to Google it. Um, you make your guesses now. How many countries in Africa? All right, you're going to take your guesses now. Is it more or less than 50? All right. Did you say it was less than 50? You would be correct. Not. It's 54. Apparently, there's 54. So that's not that many. Algeria is the largest country by land area and by population. Nigeria is the largest. Um, 
Very interesting. Well, maybe that is a good choice. Maybe that's an episode we do. I'll write that on the list. How, uh, the continent, continent's most, Africa's most deadly. That's a great title. Uh, okay. Well, I've got a little ahead of myself there and I've started planning a future episode, but let's look back at a past episode. This is the deadliest killer in each state, USA edition. So we're going to go through all of these states uh, alphabetically. Of course, there's no other way to do it. I guess we could do it by like, I don't know, population. That doesn't make any sense. We're going uh, alphabetically. Now, the first state alphabetically, of course, is Alabama, a state known for, uh, I can't even say an answer without being mean. I was going to say not being educated, but that feels a little mean. I'm sure there's plenty of nice, intelligent people in Alabama. So what is the most deadly animal in Alabama? Uh, this one's a little bit of a, you know, a curveball a little bit. The, the consensus, the data states that the most deadly animals in Alabama are, in quotation marks, other mammals. So here's what that means. The data shows that there have been 56 animal-related deaths in Alabama from 1993 to 2003. It's the 21st highest number in America. And while the data doesn't break down the type of animal attacks by state, it does break down by census district, which lumps Alabama together with Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky. In terms of sheer numbers, the most dangerous animals for these states are classified as other mammals, meaning cows, horses, pigs, raccoons, and other hoofed livestock. So the same animals that you can find hanging out on the farm with Old McDonald are also the most likely ones to fucking kill you, um, especially if you live or work on or near a farm. There are 102 deaths attributed to these other mammals in from 1990 to 2013. Um, there is a little bit of a breakdown from the census in these districts as well. So other mammals obviously killed 102, as we said, but... Other people were also killed by bees and wasps, uh, dog attacks, which we've come to expect, spiders, scorpions, and other bugs, and 12 people died from snake bites. So that's Alabama. We're moving up north now to the frigid, frosty, frozen, fucked wasteland of Alaska. So in Alaska, uh, there's a few animals that can cause death. Uh, you know, uh, a significant amount of pain and misery. Um, and I've found that the most likely culprits are dogs, obviously, um, bears, and moose. Moose, eh? So, um, when you think of deadly animals, you probably don't think of dogs, um, but unfortunately, Alaska has one of the highest rates of dog-related fatalities, especially for young children. Several nonprofits are fighting to change the risks associated with aggressive dogs, hoping to make deaths caused by dogs a thing of the past. Um, unfortunately, that is not going to happen. As long as people are living in close proximity to any kind of animal, accidents will happen. Um, but yeah, there are other animals in Alaska that are more exotic that can cause uh, harm to your body and soul. Um, so a recent study, this is interesting, um, obviously Alaska is the only state in the United States where polar bear attacks are possible. Um, between 1870 and 2014, there were 73 attacks from polar bears, uh, 20, uh, 63 of these left injuries, and 20 of them uh, were fatalities. In a study of bear attacks in Alaska between 2000 and 2017, there were 68 bear attacks that resulted in 66 hospitalizations and 10 human deaths. Of the 66 attacks, they were able to identify that the bear, uh, the, they were able to identify the bear in only 49 of the cases. 
and 47 of the 49 were grizzly bears, aka brown bears. Of the 10 fatalities, 7 were for grizzly bears, and only 3 were from black bears. Uh, a couple of attacks led to multiple fatalities. When you consider that 13 of the attacks were work-related, i.e. they were rangers or police officers or safety officers or tour guides, um, and another 15 were actively hunting the bears, um, it is less likely, obviously, for an average person to encounter a bear. There's actually only one ever recorded uh, human fatality from a Kodiak bear in Alaska, which was recorded in the last 75 years. Um, yeah. So, obviously, bears are a little bit of a threat, but a much more prolific threat to your life in Alaska is the moose, because it has a high moose population. Um, moose... Mooses or moose? I think it's meese. Uh, moose collide with vehicles on a regular uh, basis and cause property damage and minor injuries. However, between 2000 and 2010, there were 17 moose-related or <laughs> moose-related major incidences, uh, major injuries. The animal's large bodies put them right around the height of an average windshield, which means they are at the eye level of the passengers in the vehicle. A recent example comes from a man named Michael Rook of Chugyak, Alaska. He was driving along a highway in September of 2017 when he hit a moose and his car rolled off the road. Um, the man and the moose's body were recovered on a nearby bike path. So there you go. Alaska. Alaska. Alaska sounds like a pirate word. <laughs> I don't even know what, what's going on in this episode. I'm just in a bit of a weird giggly mood. Okay, we're going to move on to our next state, which is Arizona. Uh, Arizona, one of the few states where I actually have met someone from Arizona. I met a lovely man from Arizona a few years back. In Arizona, the animal you are most likely to be killed by are killer bees, which sounds very dramatic. Um, a study counted that 1,610 human deaths relating to animal encounters occurred in Arizona between 2008 and 2015. Of those, 478 were killed by bees, wasps, and hornets. 272 were killed by dogs. The most common fatal animal encounter with uh, 576 deaths involves other mammals, which we explained before includes dogs, ho uh, sorry, horses, cows, other hooved animals, pigs, raccoons, and other mammals. But one of the other dangers is the Africanized honeybee, which is a hybrid animal created by crossbreeding the East African lowland honeybee with various European species of bee. It was initially introduced in Brazil in 1956 in an attempt to improve the production of honey, but with the escape of 26 swarms a year, it later resulted in their spread to other parts of South America and decades later to North America. The killer bee, uh, the Africanized honeybee, has a fearsome reputation due to its highly defensive nature and its quick reactions, reportedly chasing a human for more than 400 meters in some case. The killer bee has killed more than 1,000 people, delivering 10 times more stings than their European counterparts. A swarm of this species can also kill a fully grown horse amongst other animals. These bees are typically guarded, uh, sorry, typically guard the hive in greater numbers and are therefore more likely to migrate and abscond than other species, increasing the likelihood of an encounter. Although Africanized and European honeybees may have the same venom, the former attacks in larger swarms and delivers a lot more stings. The side effects of a sting of an Africanized honeybee uh, includes nausea, vomiting, inflammation of the skin, headaches, and weakness, amongst other ailments. In several cases, victims can also suffer from an increased heart rate, respiratory, uh, respiratory problems, and kidney failure. 
As well as in Arizona, the African ice honeybee has also spread to Texas, Nevada, New Mexico, Florida, New Orleans, and many other southern states, uh, with more discoveries being made in other parts of the country on a frequent basis. Yeah. That's count that is one of the animals I don't want to see uh, ever. Is a fucking Africanized honeybee. All right, we're going on to Arkansas. Uh, I believe that's how that's pronounced. Arkansas. I'm just kidding. I know how it's pronounced. For some reason, it's Arkansas, but I mean it's an S at the end of that word, not a W. So, tell me what's going on in America. Explain. Uh, in Arkansas, apparently bears, and this surprised me, I didn't know bears were a big deal in Arkansas, but apparently they are. The CDC lists Arkansas as a state where the most common animal-related deaths are caused by large mammals. Deer-related car crashes, common throughout the US, encounters with black bears or run-ins with cougars all prove fatal. The most likely culprit appears to be the black bear, but like most of the animals in the state, it is much happier to avoid humans rather than fight them. One black bear attack happened where a hunter crawled into a small cave without knowing what was inside. The startled bear, whose home he'd entered, bit him on the head, leaving him with non-life-threatening issues. The, uh, (laughs) injuries, not issues. The hunter freely admitted the encounter was on him, not the bear. Yeah, it's a stand-your-ground state, I'm pretty sure. I can saw the bear should have shot him. Um, okay. Moving on to California now. When I should say as well, when I was doing this, I kind of get tried to guess what the animals would be, with very little success. I thought California might have bears because I know there's some national parks there, uh, but apparently the most uh, dangerous animal in California in terms of fatalities are rattlesnakes. So although around 221 people are bitten by venomous snakes annually in California, statistics show that less than half of a percent of bites are actually fatal. This is due to the availability of antivenom. Some of the most common species in California are the Sidewinder, Mojave, and Western Diamondback Rattlesnakes, which are sick names, guys. Awesome. Unfortunately, not everyone gets the antivenom in time. Paula Halfaker was camping with her friends in Southern California when she was bitten by a green Mojave rattlesnake while walking away from their camp. Knowing she needed help, Halfaker tried to get back to her friends but was weakened by the venom. When they found her, she barely had the strength to say the word snake bite. Although she finally made it to hospital, it was unfortunately too late and she passed away from her injuries and uh, shortly after. Very sad. Um, moving up to Colorado, uh, which is where South Park is, Colorado. By the way, Colorado, I think, probably one of the states I'd want to visit the most in the U.S. It looks beautiful. Uh, but one of the things I'm not looking forward to seeing when I'm there are cougars. Okay, so, uh, Colorado. Uh, there has been little to no data compiled for Colorado regarding humans being killed by animals. This is surprising, considering how wide of an array of dangerous animals live in Colorado. You could be gored to death by a mountain goat's horns, attacked by a cougar, bitten by a rattlesnake, or catch Rocky Mountain spotted fever from a tick, or be bitten by a venomous spider such as the black widow or the brown recluse. So while cougar attacks aren't extremely common, they are arguably the hardest to get away from from all the state's deadly creatures. In the last hundred years, there have been two reported incidents wherein Colorado cougars killed people. In 1991, Scott Lancaster was attacked and killed when he was out jogging in the hills of Idaho Springs, Colorado, and a 10-year-old Mark Medema was killed in 1997 when he ran ahead of his family on a hike in Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah, there you go. So I guess I should clarify, cougars are not the most deadly animals, uh, but yeah, like I said, it's boring if it's just always a fucking bee or or a mosquito or a dog. So yeah, um, okay, Connecticut. Connecticut, I believe, on the East Coast, and it's like one of those um, really wealthy states, I think. 
I have no idea about a lot of these places. So Connecticut uh, is a relatively safe state to live in in terms of animal attacks. The CDC did not have enough information from the state to include them in their report. However, rabid bobcats have known to be occasionally attacking unsuspecting Connecticut residents, which is crazy to me. Most of the time, bobcats don't act threateningly or aggressively towards humans, but that all changes when they become infected with rabies. Three women in Connecticut were attacked by a bobcat who tested positive to rabies in January of 2017. According to the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, rabies is often the cause of bobcat attacks. Moving on to Delaware, and the answer for Delaware is apparently coyotes. Again, similar to Connecticut, the number of animal-related deaths in Delaware is too small to be reported by the CDC. However, there are still some creatures to be feared in this tiny little state. Coyotes, though not native to Delaware, have expanded their range into the state. So far, coyotes have had limited contact with humans, but they are very at home in suburban neighborhoods. This leads to attacks on pets, a lack of fear in human, and possible attacks on small children. They also can carry rabies, which poses a very serious threat to both people and pets. So yeah, no one has been killed, I guess, in Delaware from coyotes, but you know, we, we did cover Jody Mitchell, who was the first human fatality in recorded history of a uh, coyote attack a while ago. Um, and yeah, they, they're not innocent creatures they're not well i mean they're innocent but they're not um completely docile they will attack you and they can kill uh we're going to florida now with florida i assume the answer had to be uh maga republicans shooting you um but it turns out it's not that uh it's it's alligators and mosquitoes so Alligator attacks in Florida represent the majority of alligator-related incidents nationally, which doesn't surprise me because um, that's where all the alligators are. Um, However, they are still exceedingly rare to occur. From 1948 to November of 2021, Florida's Conservation Commission reported 442 unprovoked alligator attacks and 14 fatalities statewide. People should be aware of safety signs in fishing and swimming sites where alligators may reside to stay safe. They've assembled a handy oh, they have assembled a handy guide to cover the realities of alligator attacks in Florida, where they're most likely to occur, and how to be prepared should you encounter one of these creatures. So, yes, I obviously expected alligators to be the biggest killer in Florida. I'm sure you did too. Um, however, they're not. The CDC actually lists non-venomous insects as the deadliest killer. Mosquito-borne illness plagues in Florida uh, plagues Florida in several forms. Diseases such as West Nile, East Equine Encephalitis, and St. Louis Encephalitis have affected and killed both people and animals throughout the state. Even worse, diseases from other countries can spread to Florida through mosquitoes, which are then passed on to humans when they're bitten. These include, oh, what's this? Chikagula fever, dengue fever, malaria, yellow fever, and Rift Valley fever. The best way to prevent mosquito bites and to reduce their ability to breed are by wearing bug spray, using mosquito nets, and eliminating areas with standing water where they might lay their eggs. Okay, let's go to Georgia. I'm, I'm currently doing another watch through of The Walking Dead, so I'm well acquainted with Georgia. That's a very cool state. Um, in Georgia... Venomous snakes such as copperheads, cottonmouths, coral snakes, and timber, pygmy, and eastern diamondback rattlesnakes are the leading cause of animal-related deaths. In 2017, snake bites in Georgia increased by around 40%, according to Georgia Georgia's Poison Control Center, and a huge uptick blamed on a short and mild winter. 
There you go. Just a little bit of information there for Georgia, but it's snakes. It's Jim Sticky Snakes again. Moving on to Hawaii. Finally, we get a really exotic animal here. I'm going to give you a second to guess. What do you think the most dangerous animal in Hawaii is? It's the tiger shark. Finally, something really interesting. Okay, by the way, there is a very odd answer on this list, and we're going to get... I'm going to laugh when I get up to it, because I remember it. Okay, so the tiger shark. Although the CDC didn't have enough information to compile animal-related deaths and statistics for Hawaii, there are dangers in the water that you'll want to avoid. Tiger shark attacks have been on the rise, which some researchers attribute to the increased number of participants in water sports and aquatic activities. The highest concentration of tiger sharks can be found off the coast of Maui. More sharks gather there than on any other Hawaiian island. This shallow stretch of ocean shelf on Maui's coast is a perfect home for tiger sharks' prey and a great, pr a great place for sharks to breed and have their pups. Currently, there is no viable solution that could reduce the number of sharks around Maui or prevent swimmers from being attacked or bitten. I have a solution. Don't swim in the water. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, cool. I was surprised to have sharks on the list anywhere. I thought that we might have, like, sharks in, like, uh, New Jersey, because, like, the New Jersey shark attacks, or, like, they are prevalent in, I believe, California as well, but uh, no. Only Hawaii has sharks as their, their uh, most deadly killer. Okay, we'll go to Idaho. Idaho is a state where I know nothing about had no idea. I thought maybe it was like some kind of weird native goat could be the answer, but apparently it's bears. According to the CDC report in Idaho, the type of animal most likely to kill you is a large mammal. The most likely culprit in this state is bears, as they are both grizzly and black bear black bears present. Grizzlies are the more aggressive of the two, but both have been known to attack and kill humans. One local woman can attest to the danger of encountering black bears. In 2017, she attacked. She was attacked on a hiking trail in Priest Lake, Idaho. She had two leashed dogs with her, which might have provoked the bear, as it was later revealed to be protecting cubs. The woman needed 97 stitches, and her ear was almost completely torn off. Ugh. God. Yucky. Okay. Illinois. Uh, only thing I know about Illinois is it's where Chicago is, so I had no idea. Uh, but apparently, timber rattlesnakes are a big threat there. The timber rattlesnake can grow up to five feet, but do not be surprised if you find one in Illinois roughly seven feet long. These venomous pit vipers do not prey on humans, but rodents, birds, lizards, and amphibians. However, the timber rattlesnake is dangerous, and if you plan to hike through Illinois' forest trails, especially in southern Illinois. However, they will not, ag they will not aggressively act if you do not disturb them. The timber rattlesnake is highly venomous with an extremely potent hemotoxic venom which can kill a human. Therefore, a victim should still consider this rattlesnake's bite dangerous and seek medical attention immediately. Uh, also, when I was researching Illinois, a bunch of stories about like rabid coyote attacks came up, so that also seems to be an issue there. Um, but I think the snakes are probably killing people in higher numbers. Uh, we're going to go to Indiana now. And Indiana is the first of a few um, states on this list where deer are the uh, most dangerous animals. So the CDC lists being bitten or struck by large mammals as the most likely cause of animal-related deaths in Indiana. Deer are a very common problem. Collisions with deer usually result in the animal's death, but can also result in human fatalities. In 2016 alone, there were 14,000 deer-involved car accidents in the state of Indiana. That's that's huge. That's fucking a lot. That's a bunch a day. Deer are most active around dawn and dusk, times of low visibility when most people are heading to and from work. Officials urge residents to take extra caution on the roads. 
Yeah. Deer in Indiana sound like kangaroo in Australia. They're, they're you know, very active around dawn and dusk and they fucking jump at your car. Fucking hate kangaroos. No, I like, I like kangaroos, but they are assholes. Okay, Iowa. Only thing I know about Iowa is the Iowa caucus was, is a big deal in your politics. According to the CDC's map, the most likely cause of an animal-related death in Iowa is being attacked by a large mammal. Again, for like the third or fourth time in a row. A deep study done by the CDC revealed that Iowa is one of four states that are home to 16% of all cattle operations in the US and 21% of the nation's cattle. Working with the livestock comes with significant risks and there have been many farm and ranch fatalities over the last few decades. Many of the causes of death are listed as blunt force trauma to either being he- to either the head or chest, often caused by getting trapped in enclosed spaces with cattle that are known to be aggressive. So yeah, cows. Imagine having cows as your deadliest animal. Pretty boring. But if you're Kansas, you don't have to imagine because it's true for them as well. Cattle are also the most dangerous animal in Kansas. Kansas was included in the deep study done by the CDC, which involved four states that are home to 16% of the nation's cattle operations and 20% of the total herd in the United States. Most of the deaths caused by beef or dairy cattle are listed as blunt force trauma to the head or chest, and most fatalities occur when animals when people get too close to the cattle. The majority of victims are men over the age of 65. There you go. We're going to go down to Kentucky right now. I have no idea if Kentucky is up or down from Kansas. I'm going to say it's down. It's down. And we're back to some you know more uh, exotic animals. The black bear is apparently the biggest threat in Kentucky. Uh, the CDC claims that in Kentucky, the animal that is most likely to kill you is some type of a large mammal. There are a few options in Kentucky aside from the poisonous spiders and venomous snakes that also call the state home. Other deaths, although deaths are uncommon, black bears, mountain lions, and deer all pose a threat to humans. However, the first mountain lion sighting since the Civil War took place in 2015, and the cat was shot soon after being spotted. That is a very American thing. That's a very American sentence. I'll say that. Okay, uh, Louisiana. This is how you do a Louisiana accent. No, it's not. Um, Louisiana is another one of the states where bees, wasps, and hornets play a very uh, big threat. The CDC study lists the animal most likely to kill you in the state of Louisiana as flying, stinging insects. Hornets and wasps are a big concern in Louisiana, in part to in part due to their ability to sting repeatedly without losing their stinger. Bees, on the other hand, die after one sting since their barbed stinger is pulled out of their body. One exterminator got a little bit more than he bargained for in a shed in Patterson, uh, Louisiana. Honey bees usually keep their colonies to under 100 members, but hornet colonies can grow almost endlessly. The nest took up over half the shed, covering the walls, floors, and several objects. Okay, now we're going to Maine, and Maine is a state I do know a little bit about, because uh, I help produce a show from my work called Almost Maine. So yeah, Maine is pretty much in, uh, well, it's near Canada. It's very, it's just, I just think Canada when I think of Maine, and, uh, you know, what's not surprising is that uh, the animal that kills you the most in Maine is the moose. It's the moose. But apparently there is minimal data from Maine on animal-related deaths. However, there are a few dangerous animals running around this rural northern retreat. One of the most dangerous animals is the moose, with its massive size and territorial attitude. These huge herbivores put a high premium on privacy, or privacy as a normal person would say it, and will usually only charge at humans if they're disturbed and see no other option. Yeah, I mean, have you seen the videos um, on YouTube of people getting attacked by moose? They are, f- like, moose are, cr- they're like big horses with 
fucking devil horns. They're wild. I love moose though. They're very cool. There was a video on TikTok I came across, which was basically just like a, a fucking majestic moose just screaming <laughs> in a lake. It was awesome. Okay, we're going to go to Maryland. Maryland, I don't know anything about. Along with several other states on the eastern seaboard, the CDC lists Maryland's main animal problem as stinging flying insects. Although a bee sting usually isn't fatal, multiple stings or an allergic reaction can be highly dangerous. Some high school students in Montgomery County in Maryland found out exactly how dangerous bees can be. After one student kicked a bee... <laughs> God. After one student kicked a beehive, the entire hive came storming out and attacked a group of kids. Several dozen students were stung and three were taken to the hospital. One student summed up the situation very well, saying, They told me to kick it. And I'm like, why would you kick a beehive? That's just so dumb. Yeah. Good point. Why did you kick it then? Let's go to Massachusetts, the state with a very long name. Um, Massachusetts. I, I don't know much about Massachusetts except it's in like New England, or you call it New England, I think. I don't know. It's where Boston is, and Boston people have like an accent that's not super dissimilar to an Australian accent. You know, you think you're fucking hard. I swear I hear that like three times a day where I live. So the CDC, and again, it's bees. It's bees, not the stinging insects. Um, the CDC lists Massachusetts as a state where stinging flying insects are the most deadly to humans. There are quite a few species of bees and wasps present in Massachusetts, including European honeybees, bald-faced hornets, giant hornets, and two-inch-long cicada killers. Unfortunately for residents, many species call Massachusetts their home and are aggressive, protective of the nests, and potentially dangerous. Let's move along to Michigan. Uh, in Michigan, and this is one of the states where, yeah, it, it truly is dogs. Dogs are definitely the most uh, dangerous animals here. Dog bites and attacks have been on the rise in Michigan, and the CDC report lists dogs as the animal most likely to kill you in the Great Lakes state. One little girl almost become a statistic in 2017. The seven-year-old from Highland Township was attacked by two of her family's seven rescue dogs when she opened their gate and had to be airlifted to hospital in Ann Arbor. Although her injuries were severe, mostly around the head and throat, she did survive. Yeah. I mean, if you listened to the last three episodes, you know it. She nearly was on that list. Um, if you want to hear about more dog attacks, go and listen to the last few episodes of this show. Because, yeah, it was all dog attacks, man. Crazy stuff. Mm. Oh, how good is water? Okay, Minnesota. We're talking about deer again. How many more states do we have? We're in the M's. Are we halfway done? Jesus. Is this going to be another two-parter? No, we'll make it an extra long video because I've missed you. It's been so long. Uh, we are in Minnesota. And I know that in Minnesota, they speak with that accent. It's like uh, where um, Fargo is from, right? Minnesota is where Fargo is. Um, so, like many states with a large population of deer... The animal most likely to kill you in Minnesota is not a carnivore. Vehicle collisions with deer can be deadly, and the deer rank as the top culprit of animal-related deaths. They beat out all other large and potentially deadly animals in the state, which include horses, cattle, bear, wolves, and mountain lions. Moving on down to Mississippi, uh, it is deer again. Uh, so, the CDC list a large animal most likely to kill you in Mississippi is the deer. However, the number of animal deaths in the state is actually extremely low. There are black bears present in the state, but they don't cross paths with humans very often, and there have never been any reported attacks in Mississippi. Wow. Good job, Mississippi. While technically not the fault of the animals, deer do inadvertently cause quite a few deaths in Michigan. Michigan? Mississippi? What? Have I repeated myself? No. I just... 
wrote that wrong, in Mississippi. Um, According to officials, there are an average of four deaths per year caused by hunters falling out of trees. What? People set up their deer hunting stands between 20 and 25 feet up in a tree and accidents are common. That's not on the deer. That's crazy. You can't count those. (laughs) (laughs) You can't count falling out of a tree. That's not the deer's fault. It's evolution's fault for not giving us wings like I suggested. Let's talk about Missouri. All I know about Missouri is it's where Ozark is set in the Ozarks. And um, the most deadly thing in the Ozark is um, uh, Jason Bateman. No, I'm just kidding. It's snakes. Missouri is the second state listed in the CDC's report as a likely place to die from an attack by a large reptile. Much like Illinois, this seems very unlikely. Almost all reported alligator attacks and deaths came from Florida, and the alligator's habitat range doesn't reach as far north as Missouri. You're much more likely to die from the snake, uh, bite from one of their five species of venomous snakes, or from an encounter with a domestic livestock or animal. Let's go to Montana, where you are very likely, well, not very likely, you are most likely to die from a grizzly bear attack. The CDC lists Montana as a state where people are likely to be bitten or struck by large mammals. Bears have a long history of spreading terror in Montana ever since the night that changed everything, the Night of the Grizzlies. On August 12, 1967, two young women were killed at their campsites by two different grizzly bears. Michelle Coons and Julie Higgleston, both 19 years old, were attacked in the early hours of the morning at locations that were just a few miles away from each other. Their companions all escaped, although one young man was mauled in the process. The horrifying night is what officials called a tragedy waiting to happen. For decades, visitors to the park had been feeding bears. This caused them to lose their fear of humans and learn to associate them with food. After the night of the Grizzlies, major changes were made in the way the public was educated about bears and the way food and trash were stored. We'll do an episode entirely devoted to the night of the Grizzlies one day in the future, but if you're interested in more bear attacks, we, we do have a couple of series you can listen to. Uh, the Death in Yellowstone is very good. Uh, the list of all deadly bear attacks, Bears and Bloodshed in North America, and also, uh, you know, if you're going to go all the way back to episode two of the show, um, yeah, the Grizzly Man, of course. Uh, although that didn't happen in Montana. I think that happened somewhere else. Now, if you live in Nebraska, I'm sorry to tell you that you have another boring animal that's going to kill you. It's cows. It's just cows. Nebraska joins Iowa, Kansas, and Missouri as the fourth state in the CDC's deep study into cattle-related death. Since these four states are home to 16% of the nation's cattle operations and 21% of the whole total fur, I've said this several times, bovine brutality is common. The most common, uh, the most deaths are caused by beef or dairy cattle, and they're listed Let's say it together, blunt force trauma to the head or chest, and most fatalities occur when people get into enclosed spaces with the cattle. So don't get into a car with a cow. The majority of victims in this state are men over the age of 65. Now, in Nevada, I had to look this animal up, I didn't know what it was. In Nevada, uh, it's a surprising animal, but you could die from a deer mice, deer mouse. Nevada surprisingly, is a great state to live in if you're worried. (laughs) It sounds kind of like a dig to Nevada there. Surprisingly, Nevada is not a shit place to live in. No, if you were worried about animal-related deaths, it's okay to live there. Although the state is home to black bears, mountain lions, and five species of rattlesnakes, there is no record of any of these animals killing humans. Wow. In general, there is relatively little information regarding animal-related deaths in Nevada. However, you should watch out for deer mice. 
Deer mice can carry hantavirus, which has a fairly high uh, fatality rate in humans and is easily spread by the little rodents. Uh, regular mice do not carry this virus. There have been two hantavirus deaths recorded, one being an Elko firefighter who died in 2011 after a rodent nest fell on him while he was dealing with a chimney fire. Yuck. Gross. In New Hampshire, you are going to die from a dog attack. It's just inevitable. Um, there is very little information regarding any type of animal attacks in the state of New Hampshire. However, they do have a surprisingly large number of legislation regarding dog bites and attacks. Their dog bite laws are more favorable to dog bite victims than other states. This extra strict law covers liability for any damage done by a dog, whether it was human injury, damage to property, or an injury to another animal, such as a pet, dog, or cat. You'd have to go back and listen to the dog episode. I can't remember if they were, um, if New Hampshire was a, it sounds familiar. I, I feel like I said New Hampshire a lot when I did that series, so it wouldn't surprise me. Okay, if you go to New Jersey, you are more likely to die from a coyote attack than from Tony Soprano shooting you in the dick. That's my Tony Soprano, but it sounded more like Elmer Fudd. In New Jersey, uh, they don't have enough information about animal-related deaths to make the CDC's list, but they do have a growing, a growing coyote problem. In late 2017, one woman was walking her small dog when a pack of five coyotes surrounded them. She was terrified, but luckily a car drove past and honked its horn until the coyotes fled. As coyotes have moved east in recent years, the population of coyotes in New Jersey has gone from around 100 to an estimated 3,000. There have been several encounters with aggressive coyotes reported, but one in particular has officials perplexed. While walking his dog, a man was attacked in the woods by an animal he says came out of nowhere. He described it as a large brown canine, but neither he nor the police could pin down whether it was a coyote or a dog. In New Mexico, deer are certainly, you know, one of the least threatening species there. Um, they have rattlesnakes, coral snakes, and scorpions. However, the CDC lists large animals such as deer as being the most likely cause of animal-related death in the state. Deer-related auto accidents have been on the rise in New Mexico, but are oddly out of sync with the rest of the U.S. While the majority of deer accidents in other states occur during autumn, which is mating season, in New Mexico you are more likely to hit a deer in June, when 12% of crashes happen. There were 191 deaths caused by drivers hitting large animals, mostly deers, in 2013 alone, as well as a 9% increase in deer-related accidents from 2015 to 2016. I remember in Breaking Bad, oh, New Mexico, I've, I've kind of stopped talking about how I know the states, but obviously Bre Breaking Bad made me know New Mexico, and in that show, um, I think there's like a mechanic that says, oh yeah, you hit a deer, but he actually hit a human. Spoilers. Um, in New York, so New York is a very urbanized state, obviously, so you're not going to get attacked by many bears or cougars there. Unfortunately, dogs do kill quite a few people in New York City and New York. The CDC lists dogs as the most dangerous animal in New York. There have been numerous attacks in the state, and a small amount of them have been fatal. Recently, the death of 65-year-old Daisy Bradshaw caused a stir in Staten Island. Two of her daughter's dogs attacked her in her own home. Bradshaw's daughters and the dogs have been living in her basement, and the daughter believes that Bradshaw went into the apartment to turn off a light. In a shocking turn of events, Bradshaw's daughter actually went to court and blamed her mother for her own death, claiming that she had been scared. She'd scared the dogs by coming into their space. I got confused and I thought that she'd come back from life to life and been sued. Um, no, she pinned the death on her dead mom, which maybe is true, but also is kind of a little fuck to do. Um, we have an animal now, finally, that we haven't talked about on this list before. In North Carolina, the beautiful state of North Carolina, um, there are many culprits 
that could be uh, the cause of your death in North Carolina. But the CDC has indicated that the most likely cause of animal-related death in the state is contact with venomous anthropods. The scariest North Carolinian anthropod is the fire ant, which has a painful bite that can send people into shock and potentially give them heart attacks, killing them. North Carolina is one of the 14 states that is currently suffering from a fire ant infestation, where the chance of being bitten each year by a fire ant is reported to be 30 to 60% a year. Now, we don't have fire ants in Australia. We have bull ants. Um, my parents used to make me call them bully ants because they bully you. Uh, and apparently the sting of a bull ant is uh, nothing compared to a fire ant. So I cannot imagine the intense pain that is caused by one of those animals. Um, let's go to North Dakota now, an animal that has not been on this list before, but we have spoken about in uh, great detail in the past, the bison. North Dakota has minimal data relating to fatalities caused by animals. There are, however, a lot of bison attacks. In mid-2017, a 65-year-old Alaskan hiker was gored in the thigh by a bison in Theodore Roosevelt National Park. When he encountered the huge beast on the trail, he attempted to give it a wide berth. It apparently wasn't wide enough, and the bison charged him and slammed him into the bushes, knocking him out. When he came to, he realized he had a large gash in his leg and managed to slow the loss of blood with one of his socks until other campers heard his cries for help. And if you listen to our Death in uh, Yellowstone series, you know that bison attacks are no laughing matter, and that guy is quite lucky to be alive. Um, in Ohio, I'm just going to skip through this one. Um, also, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers to the uh, Ohio people affected by that train derailment uh, from a few weeks ago. Um, dogs are the most dangerous animal in Ohio by far. Um, Oklahoma, we're finally here. This is um, this is the one that really surprised me. I guarantee you, you will not you will not get this. So of course in Oklahoma, as with most states, it's actually dogs. But one of the animals that pops up on the list of really deadly dangers in Oklahoma, you're not going to guess it. Tigers. This blew me out of the water. So as is with the case with almost every other state in the Midwest, Oklahoma has been designated a large animal state by the CDC report. And like many others, the highest risk comes from road collisions with deers that are potentially fatal. However, Oklahoma also has an interesting habit of not being able to not being able to keep tigers contained. There have been multiple instances over the last few years of tigers and other large exotic species escaping, whether it's during a tornado or due to a faulty fence. So Apparently, tigers uh, can be more dangerous than, or obviously, tigers can be more dangerous than deer. Uh, and if there are enough of them, they can cause a real problem. And surprise, surprise, Tiger King was set in Oklahoma. I did check that out. And from that documentary series, we did learn that, you know, like America, and particularly southern states like Oklahoma, um, they have a really bad, they have a lot of laws, or they have a lack of laws that stop you from owning uh, exotic pets, such as tigers. Now, there are more tigers in captivity in states like Oklahoma than there are in the wild in countries like India. It's a pretty sad, sad fact. We're near the bottom of our list, guys. We only have Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Virginia, Washington. There's a lot of states left. What am I talking about? Let's power through. Let's power through them. Um, what what time is it? <laughs> How long have we been going for? A, a while. Wow. Okay. Let's just power through and we'll only stop this interesting. In Oregon, it's bees, wasps, and yellow jackets. In Pennsylvania, it's dogs. In Rhode Island, this is the first one on the list, it's spiders. Rhode Island doesn't have enough data for the CDC to crown an animal killer, and it isn't really home to too many dangerous animals. But however, you might encounter a black widow spider. They are in common and there is an antivenom to treat them. Uh, yeah, so Rhode Island, spiders. In South Carolina, 
you're likely to die from wasps and hornets in South Dakota. Large mammals such as elk, coyotes, badgers, deers, and even porcupines can kill you. But of course, the largest and most dangerous is the American bison. In Tennessee, the most dangerous animal and most likely to kill you is a brown recluse spider. In Texas, same as the state we talked about before, um, raft-building fire ants. So this is interesting. Texas is one of two states with a venomous anthropod danger, according to the CDC. It is one of the states in the South that is experiencing increasing problems with invasive fire ants, whose bite is painful but rarely fatal. They are the most dangerous to individuals who have allergies to their venom, much like the people who are allergic to bees. During Hurricane Harvey, videos showed ant colonies floating on the floodwaters, and they caused a bit of a panic for good reason. When a fire ant colony finds something dry, they will climb it, even if it's a terrified person. They develop this technique in the native Amazon rainforest and stick together using their hooked legs and the wax on their bodies. The recommendation for Texan residents and anyone who encounters these floating horrors is to use a deep soap, is to use dish soap to break up the wax on the ants' bodies and to drown them, which seems mean. Um, in Utah, you're likely to die from deer. In Vermont, which is where Bernie Sanders is from, I think, he's from New York, but he, he represents v- Vermont, uh, moose presents a clear and present danger. In Virginia, it's deer. In Washington, it's bees and wasps. In West Virginia, it's snakes. In Wisconsin, it's mosquitoes. And in Wyoming, ending on a good one, Wyoming, grizzly bears are the most common dangerous animals in Wyoming. There are an estimated 700 grizzly bears that live in Yellowstone National Park. And there you go. We powered through at the end there because we were taking a while. But yeah, that is the list of the most dangerous animals in each state. Very good stuff, if I don't say so myself. James, past tense James, very good stuff. This is future James speaking, past James. You did it. Good job. And if I might be so bold, I'm present James now, and I'm going to talk to future James, who is currently, well not currently, but in the future is recording his best of 2024 episodes, 12 months down the line. You dropped the ball, buddy. (laughs) It really, you had, a, you had a good thing going. 2021, 2022, 2023, all great. 2024, that's when it all fell apart. The wheels fell off the wagon. Shit hit the fan. You said that thing about that ethnic group. And, and you absolutely got cancelled. I can't believe you did that. Or do that. Or will do that. Uh, I don't know. Time is confusing. I just finished watching Loki. I'm, I'm so confused. I don't, I, I don't understand. He held the, the, the branches... The vines are time. Is he a tree now? Uh, anyway, speaking <laughs> speaking of trees, I don't know how I'm going to... Let's see how I do it. Speaking of trees, uh, sometimes people kill people by hanging them on tree branches. And sometimes they kill people by doing other things. And that's what these people did. <laughs> Terrible. The next episode we're going to look back at, one of my favorites, this is an episode I wanted to do for, for, for honestly, for months and months and months before we recorded it, um, because I'm a huge true crime, true crime fan outside of the podcast, outside of the animal kingdom. Um, so I wanted to do a little bit of an investigation on serial killers. Um, not that they eat people, although that is also a really good you know, episode I wanted in the future, I want to do cannibals, like human cannibals, because they're technically man-eaters too, but I wanted to talk about, um, 
serial killers and relate that to the animal kingdom by which ones had pets. So it's a bit of a, it's not a cliche, but it is kind of a stereotype, although it is true, I guess. Not a lot of serial killers have pets. It's the ones that we talk about in this episode are um, anomalies. I mean, abnormality. I mean, they're abnormal in many other ways too, mostly because they kill and sexually assault other people. Um, But we're going to talk about some people who were serial killers or murderers who also loved their pets. I think the the episode was called uh, Serial Killers and the Pets Who Love Them or something like that. Um, We talk about Bleep, who was the dog of Dennis Nielsen, who was one of the UK's most prolific serial killers and sexual assaulters. Um, Blondie, who was Adolf Hitler's dog, who, while he's not technically a serial killer, he also isn't a great guy for obvious reasons, so he's on the list. Uh, And Mr. Muggs was on there. Mr. Muggs was the pet chimpanzee, or pet monkey? Or chimpanzee, I can't remember. I think he's a chimpanzee that um, lived at Jonestown during the Jonestown Massacre. And there is another one in there as well. I think it's um, uh, Ian Brady and... uh, uh, Myra Henley's dog as well. So here's an episode entitled Bleep Blondie and Mr. Muggs, the Pets of Serial Killers. This was episode 52, uh, way back in June, I believe it was published. Uh, no, um, uh, sorry, May it was published. Um, one of my favorite episodes, a deviation kind of from what we do here, but I don't mind mixing it up every now and again and trying something new. And so, and that's what we did here. So this was an episode really about serial killers, but we did link it into animals a little bit. So uh, here we go. Time to tickle your true crime bone and uh, listen to Bleep Blondie and Mr. Muggs, the pets of serial killers. So, animal cruelty, particularly when it involves torturing or killing animals, is considered to be a red flag for potential violent behaviour in the future. Many notorious serial killers such as Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy and David Berkowitz aka the Son of Sam had a history of animal abuse before they escalated to committing violent acts against humans. Psychologists and researchers have studied the connection between animal cruelty and later violent behaviour. They've found that animal abuse can serve as a precursor to acts of violence against humans. This pattern is often seen in individuals who display signs of psychopathy or conduct conduct disorder, characterized by a lack of empathy, disregard for others' feelings and rights, and a tendency to engage in aggressive or antisocial behavior. Now, there are several theories that attempt to explain the link between animal cruelty and future violent acts. One perspective suggests that animal cruelty provides an outlet for individuals to exert power and control over over a vulnerable being, allowing them to satisfy their sadistic tendencies or get revenge on others in society who have treated them the wrong way. By inflicting harm on animals, they experience a sense of domination and derive a pleasure from causing the suffering. Another theory emphasizes the desensitization effect of animal cruelty. Engaging in acts of violence against animals can reduce inhibitions and diminish empathy towards living creatures. This desensitization may progressively extend to humans, making it easier for individuals to inflict harm on people without remorse or guilt. It's important to note that, you know, cruelty to humans, committing violent acts to animals or humans is not a normal thing. In Nazi Germany, the majority of Nazi soldiers, they had to be fucking drunk or high to do a lot of the terrible things that they did. It is not part of human nature to act this way. So building up to it <clears throat> by committing acts of animal abuse is one way that they might de- they may desensitize themselves. Now, it is also important to note that not all individuals who engage in animal cruelty will become serial killers or violent criminals. Many factors contribute to the development of violent behavior. 
including genetic predispositions, childhood trauma, environmental influences, and mental health issues. Animal cruelty is just one potential warning sign amongst others that may indicate an individual's potential for escalating violence further. Efforts have been made to recognize the significance of animal cruelty in identifying individuals who may pose a risk to society. Animal welfare organizations, law enforcement agencies, and mental health professionals increasingly collaborate to address cases of animal abuse and provide intervention and support to individuals who are at risk. Now, interestingly, while many serial killers have a history of animal abuse and torture, some murderers are actually animal lovers, and not in the creepy sexual way. Maybe in some ways, but not today. Today, we're looking at a few individuals who, while they reveled in taking human life, cats and dogs, they actually loved. We're talking about serial killers and the pets who loved them. So our first serial killer that we're going to talk about today is Dennis Nielsen, also known as the Muswell Hill Murderer and the Kindly Killer. He was a British serial killer who operated in London during the late 1970s and early 1980s. His early life was marred by a troubled childhood. He grew up in Fraserburgh, a coastal town in Scotland, and had a difficult relationship with his father, Olaf, who was an abusive alcoholic native to Norway. So what happened was uh, during <clears throat> a war, um, a lot of Norwegians came over to this little town called Fraserburgh, and Fraserburgh was like one of those very small, I don't know what you call it, like, I'm going to just, for lack of a better term, call it an incest town. It had like 40 guys living there, not a lot of people, so everyone just slept with each other. So when you had these all these Norwegian hot sexy guys walking in and be like oh yeah oh, could you give me a muscle massage I'm very sore from fighting Hitler um that's you know that's <laughs> there were a lot of fucking blonde-haired babies born and Nielsen was one of them Nielsen described his father as a strict disciplinarian who would physically punish him Nielsen Dennis pick up your no that's that's not a Scottish uh Norwegian uh Dennis, pick up your Lego blocks. There are I I step on a Lego block. Ah, bad. These experiences had a lasting impact on Nielsen's psyche and contributed to his feelings of isolation and detachment. In 1961, Nielsen joined the British Army and served as a cook in the Royal Army Catering Corps. He was stationed in various locations, including Germany and Yemen. During his military service, Nielsen began to explore his homosexuality, although he struggled with accepting his own sexual orientation due to societal attitudes at the time. He is not the only serial killer that uh, suffered from that, by the way. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer is another one I can think of off the top of my head. After leaving the army in 1972, Nielsen moved to London and started working for various jobs, including as a police officer for a very brief period. It was during this time that he began his series of murders, which would span from 1978 to 1983. Now, Nielsen's crimes were centered around his home at 23 Cranley Gardens in the Muswell, area, Muswell Hill area of London. Nielsen's victims were primarily young men who he met in bars, pubs, or on the street. He targeted those who were vulnerable, often struggling with homelessness or substance abuse issues. Nielsen would invite these men into his home where he would ply them with alcohol before strangling them to death. He then retained the bodies for an extended period, engaging in acts of necrophilia and conducting experiments in order to pre preserve them. Now, rather than disposing of the bodies, Nielsen opted to keep them in his house for extended periods of time. He placed the corpses under floorboards or stored them in cupboards, meticulously caring for them and engaging in conversations with them. When decomposition became too advanced, he would either dismember the bodies and dispose of the remains by burning them in a bonfire or by boiling them and flushing them down the toilet. 
All of this happened while Nielsen was living with Bleep, a crossbreed collie that Nielsen had co-owned with an ex-partner. Bleep was a beautiful little dog. He's very cute. Nielsen did unspeakable things to the young men and boys and to their corpses after he'd killed them. But Bleep was always kept in excellent health. He was walked daily, fed well, and loved. On one terrible occasion, Bleep uh, revived a young man that Nielsen had strangled to quote-unquote death. Bleep was licking the man's face, and Bleep accidentally roused him. Nielsen went on to pretend that the guy had just passed out after strangling himself on the zip of his sleeping bag. It's not a stretch to say that Bleep saved the 21-year-old's life, but things were not going to end so well for the innocent little border collie. Now, one thing that you might be thinking, this guy killed body, killed people, left their bodies in his house to rot. Did, Bleep, did, did Dennis ever think of feeding the bodies to his dog as one way of disposing of the bodies. Now, the answer is no, thankfully. But it's not out of any kind of squeamishness on, you know, fucking with a human body. As you might have guessed by the whole boiling and shoving him in the toilet thing, he didn't really give a fuck about the bodies. Uh, Nielsen later said that he never fled, uh, fed Bleep the meat because he was concerned that feeding the dog the rotting flesh of a human being could make Bleep sick. Uh, which is like, it's such a weird mentality, but you know, it's, I guess that's at least one good thing that he that he thought of. Um, Nielsen's crimes were discovered in 1983 when a drain outside his house became blocked due to human remains. A plumber was called to fix the issue and discovered gruesome evidence and alerted the police. The story of how this guy got caught is so goddamn funny, by the way. So for years, uh, look, it's, I'll go back and tell a little bit more. <clears throat> Originally, Nielsen had a, a, a house, basically, with a back courtyard where he could just burn the bodies. He was very brazen about it. He would just start big bonfires and throw a body on, and he would just, like, throw tires on to, to sort of disguise the smell. And he would do that all day, and people were just like, oh, yeah, that weird Scottish guy is just, like, having a bonfire again. No one really, you know, discovered it. He got evicted from that place, and so he had to move to this apartment uh, in Muswell Hills, uh, and he did not have access to a garden anymore. So what he sort of came to, to do was he would store the bodies, and then he would chop them up, uh, he would boil the flesh off the bones, and he would flush all, all of the, uh, the rotting human remains down the toilet. Now, what happened was eventually he did it so much that the, the, the toilet started to get clogged. Uh, and people in the apartment building started getting really pissed off, and he was like, "Oh shit, oh fuck, I'm I'm in trouble here." Uh, you know, a a <laughs> a plumber came to like look at the issue outside, and hadn't discovered anything yet. Nielsen knew it was only a matter of time until he you know was discovered. So what he <laughs> what he did was he got a he got a bunch of KFC, like a bucket of chicken, and he went outside <laughs> at nighttime. And he opened like the manhole cover and he was just throwing chicken, like KFC down there so that if any like human bones or flesh were discovered, uh, he could just say, oh yeah, no, it's just, it's KFC. I was flushing KFC down my toilet, which is so goddamn funny. But he got caught. Someone in the apartment building saw this fucking dickhead flushing, like throwing KFC in a hole, in a manhole. And the next day when the, when the, um, <laughs> when the plumber came through and found a fucking chicken wing, um, <laughs> the neighbor was like, yeah, I saw that Dennis Nielsen guy throwing chicken in the sink. So the police came up and were like, why were you doing that? And he was like, oh yeah, I was just pissing. I just took a piss in the manhole. So obviously, um, yeah, there was a subsequent investigation and uh, the remains of several victims were found in the pipes and also in his home. Uh, following Nielsen's arrest, he was hugely vocal about the care that his dog needed. Tragically, for whatever reason, Bleep was put down within a few days of her serial killer master being captured. 
1983, Nielsen stood trial for six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. He confessed to the killings, providing chilling details about the motives and methods. Nielsen expressed a desire for companionship and an unwillingness to let his victims leave once they were inside his home. He claimed to have lost count of the exact number of victims, but estimates say that he killed about 15 to 16 young men. Nielsen was found guilty on all charges and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Initially, he was incarcerated at HMP Wormwood Scrubs, which is such a British name for a prison, before being transferred to HMP Full Sutton in 2001. Throughout his time in prison, Nielsen remained highly a highly controversial figure, often making headlines with his various appeals and statements. Now, here's another bit of pet trivia for you. During his incarceration, Nielsen was allowed to keep two budgerigars, which he named Hamish and Tweedles, which is very cute when you don't think about what this creep did. On May 12, 1918, Dennis Nielsen died at the age of 72 in custody at HMP Full Sutton. The cause of death was reported to be complications related to a pulmonary embolism and a retrofenontial hemorrhage. Nielsen's crimes shocked the public and left a lasting impact on the collective consciousness of the United Kingdom. His case shed light on the vulnerability of homeless individuals and led to an increased awareness for the need of support and resources for this marginalized group. Nielsen's actions and the graphic details surrounding his crimes have made him one of the most notorious and reviled serial killers in British criminal history. Now, if you want to know more about Dennis Nielsen, there was, a, I think, a TV movie or TV show made, and D- David Tennant plays him. And it's actually funny, when you Google Dennis Nielsen, uh, a fo- he doesn't come up. A photo of, uh, of, of David Tennant comes up, which is hilarious. He does look like him, but it's not him. So another serial killer that uh, left a massive uh, impact on the world was Myra Hindley and her associate, Ian Brady. Myra Hindley's early life provides some insight into her background and upbringing. She was born and raised in Gorton, Manchester, during a time of post-World War II social and economic transformation in the United Kingdom. Hindley grew up in a working-class family, and her childhood was marked by a turbulent and challenging environment. Her Her parents divorced when she was young, and she lived with her mother and grandmother. Hindley's life was characterized by a troubled disposition. She was described as a difficult child, often engaging in attention-seeking behaviors and exhibiting a rebellious nature. She struggled academically and dropped out of school at the age of 15, later working as a clerk and typist. In 1961, at the age of 18, Hindley met Ian Brady at her workplace. Brady, who was five years older than her, was already displaying a deep interest in criminal activity, in activities including burglary and armed robbery. The couple quickly formed a relationship based on their dark fantasies and disturbing inclinations towards sadism and violence. Their crimes began in July 1963 when Hindley assisted Brady in the abduction and murder of a 16-year-old girl named Pauline Reed. Over the next two years, they continued their reign of terror, targeting vulnerable children and adolescents. Their victims were enticed, sexually assaulted, and eventually murdered, with Hindley often luring the victims to their deaths. The remains of such victims were later discovered at, on Saddleworth Moor, while others, such as Keith Bennett, have never been found despite extensive searches. The revelations surrounding the Moor murders shocked and horrified the nation. Hindley's involvement in the crimes came under intense scrutiny during the subsequent investigation and trial. Initially, she attempted to distance herself from Brady's actions, claiming coercion and manipulation. However, as new evidence emerged, it became evident that she had actively participated in the crimes and played a significant role in their planning and execution. 
In May 1966, Hindley and Brady stood trial at Chester... I can't even read this word. As sizes, the trial received widespread media coverage and captivated the public's attention. Both were found guilty of multiple counts of murder, and Hindley was also convicted of being an accessory to the murder of Edward Evans. The judge handed down life sentences, emphasizing the grave nature of their crimes and the need for them to be kept in custody for the rest of their lives. During her imprisonment, Hindley made several attempts to secure her release. She claimed to have experienced a transformation, embracing Catholicism and expressing remorse for her actions. However, her appeals for parole were constantly denied as public sentiment and the, and the families of the victims vehemently opposed her release. Hindley's crimes were considered amongst the most heinous in British criminal history, and her attempts at redemption were met with skepticism and resistance. Hindley's death in 2002 marked the end of a deeply troubling chapter in British crime. Her crimes, along with Brady's, continue to generate significant public interest and serve as a stark reminder for the capacity of human evil within human beings. The Moore murders case has become a lasting impact on British society, influencing changes in law enforcement practices, child protection policies, and public perceptions of crime and punishment. The victims' families continue to cope with the devastating loss and the enduring legacy of the crimes committed by Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. Because during the investigation they refused to cooperate with police, their dog Puppet ended up being one of their final victims. It was uh, killed during the investigation. Disgustingly, Hindley and Brady took photographs on top of the graves of children. Many of these featured Puppet. Police needed to determine the dates of the photographs, and they believed that this could be done by ascertaining an accurate age of the dog. Puppet was x-rayed and unfortunately died during the procedure. It took decades to find some of the missing children, and one remains uh, and one's remains discover un <laughs> sorry, and one remains undiscovered to this day. When she found out that her dog had died, Hindley reportedly said, "I feel as though my heart has been torn to pieces." No such remorse was ever shown for the children whose lives she took. Now we're going to talk about another famous historical figure right now, uh, probably one of the most famous historical figures, and your question may be, is this person technically a serial killer? We're talking about Adolf Hitler, who really doesn't need much of an introduction. Was he a serial killer? Did he kill anyone personally? I don't know, but he is responsible for the deaths of millions of people. I think he qualifies for this piece of shit list that we're doing here. So you all know about Adolf Hitler. He was the biggest dickhead in history, uh, and he, yeah, to just, you know, biggest understatement of the year, he did some bad stuff. He killed a couple guys. He killed some Jews. Too many Jews, if you ask me. Uh, but we're not talking about Hitler. We're talking about his dog. Hitler had a dog. His name was Blondie. He was a German shepherd, of course. Blondie was given to Hitler as a puppy in 1941 by Martin Bormann, one of Hitler's close associates and members of his inner circle. Hitler became quite attached to Blondie and considered him a loyal companion. Blondie often accompanied Hitler to the Wolf's Lair, Hitler's military headquarters in East Prussia and other locations. Hitler was known to have a fondness for dogs and treated Blondie as a pet rather than a working dog. He would play with Blondie, taking him for walks and even allowed him to sleep in his bed. Blondie gained a level of prominence due to his association with Hitler. He was frequently photographed with the Nazi leader and the images were used for propaganda purposes to, hu uh, to humanize Hitler's public image. Now, tragically for Blondie, not for Hitler, uh, 
his life came to an end. In April 1945, as the Allies were advancing on Berlin, Hitler and some of his closest aides, including his girlfriend Eva Braun, were killed, or were <laughs> killed themselves, I guess, <laughs> in the Führerbunker, an underground shelter beneath the city. On April 29th, 1945, a day before Hitler and Eva Braun committed suicide, Hitler ordered his personal physician, Dr. Ludwig Stumpfeger, to euthanize Blondie. The exact method is disputed, with some accounts suggesting that Blondie was given a cyanide capsule, similar to one used by Hitler and Braun, while others claim he was shot. Some people like to assume that the uh, cyanide pill was a test to make sure that Hitler and Eva Braun's uh, pills were going to be effective in killing them. Following Blondie's death, Hitler and Eva Braun took their own lives. Blondie's story serves as a reminder of Hitler's personal life and the complex relationship he had with animals. If you don't know this, uh, Hitler was actually a vegetarian. He did not like violence towards animals, which is, again, such a weird juxtaposition with what he did to human beings in his lifetime. And we know he didn't view Jewish people or gypsies or gays or blacks as people. He viewed them as less than people. But presumably he, viewed, he still viewed them at least on par with animals. So it is interesting that he treated them so poorly um, when treating animals, and especially Blondie, with such respect and reverence. Now, while he displayed affection and care towards Blondie, it's important to recognize that Hitler's treatment of animals should not overshadow the immense human suffering and atrocities he committed during his life. That is uh, something that's going to be similar for our next person. We are talking about another person who maybe you wouldn't call him a serial killer, but he I would definitely say he's a mass murderer. We're talking about Jim Jones, uh, the cult leader of Jonestown, probably the most famous co- uh, cult leader in history, unless you count like L. Ron Hobbit and Scientology as a cult, which I do. Okay. The story of Jim Jones and Jonestown is a complex and tragic tale that provides valuable insights into the dynamics of cults and the dangers of unchecked charismatic leaders. Very similar to Hitler just before. Jim Jones was born in 1931 in Indiana. Initially, he started his religious career as a Methodist minister. However, he soon established his own religious group, the People's Temple, which combined elements of Christianity, socialism, and racial equality. The People's Temple gained popularity for its messages of social justice and its commitment to helping the disadvantaged. Jones used his charisma and persuasive abilities to attract followers, drawing a diverse group of people, including those seeking a sense of purpose, marginalized individuals, and idealistic young activists. The cult gradually evolved into a highly controlling and isolated community under Jones's iron grip. He demanded absolute loyalty and enforced strict rules using fear and manipulation to maintain his authority. Before the cult really got its feet off the ground, um, Jim Jones needed to make money while he was trying to run this stuff. He actually, this is such a funny piece of trivia, Jim Jones actually made a living. He sold spider monkeys to people. He would import them from India, uh, and he would he would uh, import them from India for, and he would sell them for about sixty bucks, which in today's money is about two hundred bucks. Which you know, two hundred bucks is not nothing, but it's pretty cheap for a you know a fucking spider monkey, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, he, I, I I tried really hard to find. There's a tape. There's a there's a website called the Jonestown Institute. You can look this up yourself. It's a fantastic resource about Jonestown. It has all the transcribed tapes from Jonestown and a lot of other stuff throughout his life. There is one in there. I know it's in there because I've I've heard it before. Uh, I couldn't find it, but there's a there's a woman talking about how yeah Jones tried to sell her her monkey. She had already had a monkey, and the. <laughs> The, the monkey hung itself. I don't know how. She says it's so nonchalant. She's like, well, I needed another monkey because my first monkey, well, he hanged himself. 
who, what's happening in your house? What, what is the, how low is the quality of life? How is the standard of living in your house so low that spider monkeys are fucking committing suicide in your house? Don't sell her any more monkeys, Jim. Um, that was Jim's first sort of like, you know, interaction with, with uh, animals. Well, I shouldn't say it's his first. He did kill a puppy when he was younger. Uh, he, he sort of, he was a great organizer. He was community organizer when he was really young. I think he was only 15 or 14. He created like a basketball tournament. He was not a good sportsman, but he liked organization. So he organized like a basketball league from all the towns around his place. And it was a success. It ran really smoothly. People loved playing. But then at one of the meetings, he just, he led a puppy into a trapdoor and it fell to its death and died. And after that, it, the whole thing fell apart. Um, people didn't want to hang out with him anymore, strangely enough. Yeah, so he's had some interesting interactions with animals, but he has one animal in particular, which is quite interesting, which we'll come to in a little bit later. But firstly, let's talk about uh, their trip to Guyana. So in 1977, under mounting scrutiny and investigations into allegations of abuse, Jones relocated the People's Temple to Guyana in South America. There, he established a settlement called Jonestown which was intended to become a self-sufficient utopian community. However, Jonestown soon became a place of isolation, deprivation, and psychological and physical abuse. Reports of the conditions and treatment within Jonestown eventually reached the United States, leading to growing concerns about the welfare of its residents. In November 1978, U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan and a delegation, along with journalists and concerned family members of Jonestown members, traveled to Guyana to investigate the situation. During the visit, some Jonestown members expressed a desire to leave, seizing the opportunity presented by Congressman Ryan's visit. However, as they attempted to depart, they were ambushed and attacked by armed followers of Jim Jones. Congressman Ryan, several journalists, and a defector from the cult were killed in the attack. Fearing the consequences of the assault on the visiting delegation, Jim Jones made the fateful decision to orchestrate a mass murder-suicide. On November 18, 1978, he ordered his followers to drink a concoction of cyanide-laced Flavor-Aid, okay, Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid. Over 900 people, including children and infants, lost their lives in the tragic event. The Jonestown Massacre shocked the world and prompted widespread scrutiny of cults and the dangers they posed. It highlighted the vulnerabilities of individuals susceptible to manipulation and illustrated the immense power that a charismatic leader can wield. The tragedy sparked discussions about the need for stricter oversight of communal and religious organizations and led to reforms in the United States. The legacy of Jonestown serves as a haunting reminder of the devastating consequences that can arise when charismatic leaders exploit the trust and loyalty of their followers. It has, a profoundly influ- it has profoundly influenced the study of cults, psychology, and the understanding of group dynamics, emphasizing the importance of critical thinking, awareness, and safeguards against abusive practices. Now, one of the uh, individuals who died at Jonestown was a chimpanzee named Mr. Muggs, and he was one of Jones's earliest, uh, well, I can't say followers because it was a chimpanzee, uh, one of Jones's earliest, let's call them family members. Mr. Muggs was a chimpanzee who was picked up from a pet store by Jim Jones and his family on the way back from Los Angeles on a trip in 1971 or 1972 when Stephen Jones was 11 or 12 years old. Stephen is uh, Jim Jones' child. Despite rumors to the contrary, Mr. Muggs was not rescued from an animal testing lab or from a vivisectionist. He was named after J. Fred Muggs, a chimpanzee who, as his namesake did with the temple, acted as a mascot on the NBC's Today Show from 1953 
1957. Mr. Muggs had a diaper on him when Jim brought him to the, to the car, but it, di- but it didn't stay on very long. He fouled the interior on numerous occasions on the way back to Redwood Valley, and as Stevens described it, laid waste to a number of rest areas en route. The chimp lived in Redwood Valley for a couple of years. He started off living behind a, pus- uh, sorry, a parsonage in a cage that had a small building connected to it where he would go to stay warm. The cage served as a second purpose as well. It was used for security with stairs to the top and a small building for 24-hour personal uh, security uh, details. A shortwave radio antenna was also located on a pole attached to the cage. Jim was, as you can imagine, not very humane with his new acquisition, often disciplining him quite physically, according to Stephen. Eventually, longtime Temple member Joyce Touchette adopted Mr. Muggs and the chimpanzee became a fixture of the Touchette household. He rode on the Temple bus periodically, always in the care of Joyce. Now, Mr. Muggs could be a real handful. He seemed to take special delight in intimidating the Touchette family dog, but he also viewed Joyce, Joyce as a mother and respected, if not feared her, because of her maternal discipline. Even in Jonestown, no one could handle him except Joyce. Muggs went to Guyana on, on one of the first charter trips uh, Temple members made in December of 1974. His cage was also one of the first structures erected in Jonestown and was ready for him when he arrived. I find that really sad. Like, this chimpanzee, all of its life has been kept in cages and it just longs to go into the jungle and it gets finally taken to the jungles of South America and then just gets put in a cage again. <laughs> he should have just gone out and hung out with the monkeys and stuff. Um, Mr. Muggs developed into a solid chimpanzee weighing upward of 130 pounds. When he became excited or angry or anxious, he would flare out his hair and become larger than life. He was a social being and loved to play games like keep away or tug of war. Practically anyone could get him to play and to get him worked up during the play, but Mr. Muggs usually won the battle, in part because he was not afraid to use his teeth to nip his opponents. Mr. Muggs could also use his feet as hands and was adept at pulling blankets through bars in his cage. He would also reach through the bars and dangle a blanket as an invitation for a game of tug of war. Oftentimes young boys in Jonestown would play with him, but even with three or four boys at the other end of the blanket, Mr. Muggs would still win, especially when he used his legs to brace himself in the inside of his cage and suddenly rear back. When Stephen or one of his friends saw Mr. Muggs get into that position, they would run towards the cage to save the boys from being jerked off their feet. Now, very sadly, along with several dogs, Mr. Muggs was one of the animals that were shot in Jonestown on November 18th, although who fired the shots is not known. Apparently, according to some of the tapes, one of the very first jobs on the day of the mass murder was to go and kill Mr. Muggs. According to Guyana Assistant Police Commissioner Skip Roberts, Mr. Muggs was shot three times, but he was still alive when the Guyana Defense Force arrived in Jonestown 36 hours later. He died soon afterwards. And that's it, guys. That is four... Well, I guess it's more than four criminals. Uh, we, had, we had Dennis Nielsen, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, Adolf Hitler, and, of course, Jim Jones of Jonestown. Uh, we'll call that four groups of terrible people who did terrible things to other people and to animals, but they did have pets who I guess they loved, except for Jones, who seemed to not really care about this chimpanzee. Finally, guys, 
we have one more episode we're going to fit into this part. This is going to be like a massive episode, but I think that that's okay. There's lots of good stuff in here. Um, the serial killer episode, by the way, one of my favorites. Really enjoy that. I hope you found that really informative. And if it's the kind of episode you'd like me to do again, I'm sure there are other serial killers who have pets. Um, and I, and yeah, like I mentioned at the intro of that episode, um, I'm desperate to do an episode on cannibals, like human human cannibalism. Um, to talk about that as a general concept, like just how, how that happened, where it's practiced in the world currently and where it has been practiced. It's such a social taboo. But then maybe also do an episode of like famous cannibals like uh, like Jeffrey Dahmer comes to mind, of course. And um, who, who's another one? Did, did uh, What's his face? Um, I can't remember his name. Bundy. Did Bundy eat people? I think Bundy did eat someone. Not a whole body, but I think he did slice off a nipple or something and eat that. So... Yeah, he bit off a, a nipple, I'm pretty sure. Because that's how they caught him, with the dental records. Well, that's how they convicted him, maybe. Um, maybe li- look out for that one in 2024. <laughs> Man, it is episode on, on uh, famous cannibals. But um, moving on now, not to cannibals. I was trying to think of an interesting segue, but there really isn't one. I don't know how to link serial killers to birds. Um, but that's what we're doing next. Uh, birds of Prey was another episode this year that I really enjoyed. And this one really sprung from the idea, or the question rather, of like, are birds deadly? So this was episode 58, and it was published in July. Um, and the, the really the question was, like, you know, we, we talk so often on this show about crocodiles and sharks eating people and of course that's you know reptiles and fish covered and then obviously mammals kill people a lot as well the bread and butter as i always say are big cats like the chumpwat tiger um the leopard of rudra prayag all those guys savo men eating lions and of course like bears as well um so shark so fish and reptiles and mammals are all you know, they they have their bases covered really well for this show, but we never really talked about birds. Do birds eat people? Do birds kill people? And the question is actually kind of surprising, and the answer is kind of yes, a little bit. Um, so this episode was episode 58, Birds of Prey, where we look into all the, well, not all of, but the most dangerous birds in the world. Um, some of them are dangerous because of their size. Some of them are equipped with special weapons, like the cassowary's toe. Um, some birds just will, like, drop, pick up babies and drop them, um, like eagles, for example. Um, so we're going to listen to that now. This is the final part, final section of our first part of our look back on 2023. Uh, let's sit back and listen to the Birds of Prey episode. So we are going to talk about several types of dangerous birds, but it's first to talk about bird attacks in general. Now, when you think about it, um, birds are actually probably the least dangerous sub like type of animal. Um, I can't remember what you call them. Uh, or kingdom, you know, you've got the animal kingdom and you have your different subsections of the animal kingdom. You've got your reptiles and your mammals and your fish and your birds. Birds, when you really get down to it, they're the least dangerous to humans because obviously with mammals, we've got like lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And we've got, when you think about it, fish, well, sharks are a kind of fish and they eat people, they gobble them right up, but then you also have types of fish that are just regular fish that are assholes, like stonefish and lionfish. Um, think about insects, how many people die from mosquitoes a year, or ants, or arachnids, spiders and scorpions, very dangerous. Even amphibians, right? Even amphibians, frogs and newts, you have fucking frogs that can shoot poison darts out of their faces, okay? So they're, they're also dangerous. And then, of course, with reptiles, sharks, uh, sharks, crocodiles, and snakes, and weird 
lizards. There's even a lizard in Mexico that it, like has poisonous spit, and if it bites you, you die. I think it's called like a gila monster. It's not even called a lizard. It's called a monster. So all these other animal uh, subspecies, what do you call sections of the animal kingdom, are uh, quite dangerous birds. Not as dangerous, but there are a few uh, types of birds that can cause significant damage and injury to people and up to and including death as well. So fatal bird attacks on humans are extremely rare um, and there's no known uh, bird species that is inherently and consistently uh, fatal to humans. No, they don't. They don't hunt us or anything like that. Um, now, some birds can cause dangerous injuries. The risk of uh, bird causing death is extremely low. Um, you know, I, I would say that um, one of the ways that you're most likely to die from a bird is if a bird strikes your windshield uh, while you're driving a car, or worse, if you're in an airplane. Um, we, will, we, of course, all remember what happened to Sully when a bunch of fucking geese flew into his engines like a bunch of idiots. Uh, so it's important to remember that humans are not ever typical prey or threat to birds. Most birds will avoid confrontations when possible, and most birds can fly away from us, which other animals cannot do. Uh, so that being said, there are certain factors that can increase the risk of injury or harm from a bird encounter. And there's several uh, species of birds that under the right circumstances circumstances uh, can be considered very dangerous to humans. Um, most bird species are completely harmless and pose little to no threat, uh, but some species can exhibit aggressive behavior um, and they have physical characteristics that can cause real harm to people. Um, so we're going to talk about a few examples today. And the number one uh, bird that we're going to talk about today is the, the one that I first thought of when I thought, what's a dangerous bird? It's of course the cassowary. Now the cassowary, man, the cassowary is just a fucking straight up dinosaur. If you look up a photo of a cassowary, just the its head. Um, it's it's straight up like from Jurassic Park, man. If you uh, follow us on Instagram, I do a weekly like post telling you what episode is out. And look at the photo. Go look at it now because it'll be up. Look at the photo of that cassowary, my guy. That is a straight up pterodactyl fucking thing. Uh, they're terrifying. And I've seen a few cassowaries in real life. Um, let's talk about them. Okay, so cassowaries are found um, in Australia and uh, New Guinea. Um, now, they're large, flightless birds known for their powerful kicks. Um, they are related to emus and ostriches and uh, rhea as well. Uh, those are its closest living relatives in the animal kingdom. Um <clears throat> Cassowaries have long dagger-like claws on their feet um, that they use for self-defense mostly from other animals. Um, now, but the thing is, cassowaries have been known uh, to attack humans um, if they feel threatened, and their kicks can cause serious injuries and have on several occasions been uh, very fatal. Fatal interactions with cassowaries are extremely rare, of course, as with any fatal interaction with any animal. Um, but there have been several documented cases uh, in which these birds have caused significant injuries that have resulted in death. Um, I remember when I was young, I had a book, my parents gave me a book uh, about Australia's dangerous animals and the cassowary was one of, and there was a story and I, I was not able to find um, any other evidence of this story and I don't have that book anymore. So I'm just going off my own like anecdotal memory of that book. But it, there was a story that a woman was kicked in the chest by a cassowary and the, the, um, the dagger-like claw uh, on its foot penetrated her, her heart, essentially, and killed her, like, instantly. Uh, I could not find that story anywhere on the internet, so I don't know if... I, I can't say if that's true, but the following stories that we are about to talk about did happen, and there is evidence about them, so we'll talk about those uh, in just a moment. Um, now, like I've said, th there are several documented uh, cases. Uh, 
these cases are outliers though okay the vast majority of cassowary encounters don't result in any harm they will walk off they might get a little aggressive but they will hop off so here are a couple of notable incidents where cassowaries have caused uh injuries and and yes even death so uh, during World War II, uh, cassowaries had a reputation for being dangerous to people and domestic animals. Uh, during the war, American and Australian troops who were stationed in Papua New Guinea were warned to steer clear of them. That was part of their actual orders from their, from their commanding officers. Don't fuck with the weird dinosaur birds, I think is what they said. Um, in 1958, there was a book written. It was called The Living Birds of the World. Uh, it was written by ornithologi ornithologist Ernest Thomas Gilliard, or Gillard, I think it's how it was pronounced, Ernest Thomas Gillard, he wrote, the inner or second of the three toes is fitted with a long, straight, murderous nail, which can sever an arm or eviscerate an abdomen with ease. There are many records of natives being killed by this bird. I just want to make a little sidebar and say how much I, I like the word murderous being used to describe a body part. <laughs> My ex-wife has a murderous pussy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, this assertment of um, danger posed by cassowaries, it's been repeated many times in uh, print by many authors, including Gregory S. Paul and Jared Diamond. Um, there was a historical study in 2003 of 221 cassowary attacks, and it showed that of those, 150 of them had been against humans. 75% of these had been from cassowaries that had been fed by people. 71% of the time, the bird had chased or charged the victim, and only in 15% of the times, they actually kicked at the victim. Of these attacks, 73% involved the birds expecting or snatching food, and 5% involved defending their natural food resources. 15% involved defending themselves, and 7% involved defending their chicks or their eggs. There was only one human death reported amongst all 150 of those attacks. Um, I'm sure you're wondering, there was 221 attacks, but only 150 against humans. The other ones are against domestic animals, such as dogs uh, and cattle and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, obviously, uh, the, the cassowary is not a, it's not, it's not going out hunting dudes, okay? It's not stalking its prey and stabbing you in the twat while you're asleep at night. No, it's not doing that. It's, the majority of it, of these cases are when the cassowaries, uh, become accustomed, it's like a bear, become accustomed to humans feeding it, uh, and then you just get too close and, and you get stabbed with a weird toe. Um, yeah. So the first reported uh, or documented human death caused by a cassowary was in 1926 um, on April 6th. It was in Australia, um, and 16-year-old Philip McLean and his brother, who was 13, they'd come across, across a cassowary that was on their property, and like all, you know, boys will be boys, they decided that they were going to try to kill the thing with some clubs, um, which, when I'm reading this story, it's said very matter-of-factly, but I don't know if, like, people have always been like this. I don't know. People aren't like that today. I don't think if a cassowary walked into my house, maybe if it was in my house, I'd try to kill it, but if it's on my property, I would just be like, oh, cool fucking a Tyrannosaurus Rex bird walked in, but I don't know if I'd try to kill it with clubs. Anyway, um, it didn't end well for the, for the kids. So um, the bird kicked the younger brother who fell and he ran away as his older brother struck the bird trying to defend him. The older brother then, uh, he tripped and he fell to the ground, which is a very horror movie thing to happen. He tripped over and fell to the ground. While he was on the ground, and this, is, this part is, is quite brutal. While he was on the ground, the cassowary kicked him 
in the neck, opening up a 1.25 centimeter wound, which is uh, about 0.49 inches, that severed, completely severed his jugular vein. The boy died later of his injuries, uh, blood loss, very quickly. He died straight away. That's the first known uh, or documented death in Australia of a cassowary attack. Um, so yeah, it was very unfortunate. That's the moral of the story, boys, is if you see a bird, don't try to club it to death. Just go and, I don't know, go and go, read a book, leave it, it's fine. It's just a bird. Cassowary strikes to the abdomen are among the rarest of all, but in one case in 1995, there was a dog that was kicked in the belly. Um, the blow left no puncture, but several a severe internal bruising and bleeding occurred. The dog later died from an apparent in intestinal rupture, which is very brutal. Now, there was a very recent... Um, cassowary that attack that actually occurred and i'm going to give you it, it was in it was in the u.s i'm going to give you five seconds to guess where in the u.s this happened uh, you want some thinking music you are thinking you are thinking thinking of the answer thinking of the answer it's florida yeah it was florida <laughs> in april in 2019 so only four years ago a tragic uh, and highly publicized incident occurred in Florida in the United States, uh, which involved a fatal cassowary attack. Uh, Marvin Hayos, uh, a 75-year man, year old man from Gainesville, uh, he owned several exotic animals on his property, which is always a red flag, ladies. Uh, if you're on Tinder, if he has a, a bunch of exotic animals, no, bad, bad, bad man, bad man. Um, so he owns several exotic animals, uh, including several cassowaries. Uh, cassowaries are not native to Florida, but are sometimes kept as exotic pets. Oh. With you want to keep a dinosaur as a pet. According to reports, uh, Hayos fell inside the cassowary enclosure on his property. One of the cassowaries, a male bird weighing around 130 pounds, attacked him. The bird inflicted serious injuries with its sharp claws, resulting in the death of the man. Authorities responded to the incident and the cassowary was later euthanized. Um, this particular incident, it garnered um, significant media attention uh, because it's, so, it's, a, it's such a rare um, and unique bird that was involved in the death, especially in, uh, in, in America. I, I'm actually interested, uh, Americans, have you ever heard of a, of a cassowary before? Sometimes I take it for granted, obviously living in Australia and being from here, that... Um, that this animal exists uh, with a lot of the weird, you know, um, native wildlife that, that lives here. But uh, I, I wonder if it's like an internationally um, recognized animal. I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite sad. The, the, look, it's it. This incident kind of highlighted the importance um, of responsible ownership uh, and the proper handling of exotic animals. Now, my personal feeling is that like. You know, random Joe blogs down the street probably shouldn't be owning a macaque and a cassowary and a goddamn puma in his backyard. Uh, America has insane loose laws when it comes to what animals you can own. Um, you know, I, my my feeling is that these animals need to be kept on sanctuaries or in zoos uh, if they're going to be kept in captivity at all. That um, they need to be kept in places and with people who know what they're doing. Um, that that's my feeling. But you know, keeping and interacting with large and potentially dangerous animals like cassowaries needs to be approached with expertise and caution. That's that's my feeling. Now, there are a couple historical incidences uh, of uh, people being fatally wounded by cassowaries. Um, 
Uh, these mostly occurred in, in Papua New Guinea and Australia. These incidents often involve people hunting or provoking the birds, and the cassowaries defending themselves by using their uh, powerful kicks and their sharp claws. However, as I said many times before, these cases are exceedingly rare. It's really crucial to um, to emphasize that cassowaries, um, like any wild animal, they need to be treated with caution and respect. Um, you know, that they, they have a potential to be dangerous, uh, but they will generally avoid confrontation and they're only going to exhibit aggression if they feel threatened, cornered, or they need to protect their nests or their offspring. But one thing I will add there is it's, it's all well and good to say that and to think that and to know that, but um, it's important to recognize that you might not know when they're feeling threatened or cornered. You might not know what actions you're doing to make them feel that way. So the best advice is just to steer clear. If you're in the rainforest in the Queensland or Papua New Guinea and you see a, a cassowary, the best thing you can do, man, is just to steer clear of it. Just leave it alone. So we're going to move on from cassowaries. Um, to the cassowary's older brother. Uh, of course, we're talking about the ostrich. The ostrich, it's the largest of the bird species, um, and they have powerful legs, which they can use for defense or as a mean of escape. They also have uh, fairly sharp toes, not uh, dissimilar to the cassowary, but not as exaggerated as the cassowary. The cassowary has a full-on dagger toe, whereas ostriches have, uh, I guess, more of a toned-down version of that, but they are still dangerous. Um, ostriches generally will avoid confrontation with humans. Um, but they do like display aggressive behavior when they're threatened or cornered. Same with cassowaries. Um, so like, let's let's talk a little bit about ostriches. So they have a really well-developed uh, fight or flight response. When an ostrich perceives a threat, its instinct is usually to run away. And they're really fast. They're fast fucking birds. They can reach up to speeds of like 40 kilometers per hour, which is like 64 kilometers um, in Australia. In, in, uh, what do you call it? Imper no, whatever. 64 kilometers an hour. <laughs> Imperial, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, Metric, <laughs> metric. Why, am I, why did I forget that? Imperial is miles. Uh, 64 kilometers, that's like, if you're uh, just struggling to picture what that is, that's the speed at like most roads in Sydney and Newcastle. Like that's as fast as a car. Um, but if the ostriches, for whatever reason, they feel like they can't escape or they feel trapped, they will resort to defensive behavior, which includes kicking with their powerful legs and also pecking with their big old peckers, their little uh, beaks. They have long legs, they have sharp claws, the kicks are very powerful and potentially injurious. Um, their legs can deliver strong blows capable of causing serious harm to humans or other perceived threats. I've seen videos of ostriches kick, uh, I think I, I saw one kick a hyena or maybe it was a lion and just man the fucking lion went down it broke its ribs dude it was not good. Uh, yet the force of this ostrich kick is enough to break bones and cause other significant injuries, including internal bleeding. During uh, breeding season, that's when the ostriches become territorial and they'll display defensive behavior to protect their nests and offspring. So that's the most dangerous time to get near them in the wild. Of course, ostriches live in lots of places, but they are native to Africa. Australia does have ostriches. I think there are some ostriches like in the wild in some places here, although I could be mistaken. I think I might be mistaken, but yeah, they, they're African birds essentially. Um, so if, if someone ventures too close to an ostrich nest, especially if, uh, the female is like 
incubating its eggs, the male ostrich will become aggressive and attempt to defend its area. Um, Ostriches are, are generally really wary of humans. They don't want to have anything to do with us. They'll try to avoid us. But if they're threatened or provoked, um, they will respond aggressively. Uh, it's really important to give ostriches space. If you're in the savannah, I don't know why you're near it, but still. In 2018, a zookeeper um, was attacked really badly by an ostrich after the bird um, went berserk, and zoo goers had to watch along in horror. Um, the ostrich charged the man, toppled him over, and repeatedly kicked him with the sharp claws while the zookeeper tried to escape. First reports that the zoo worker had several broken ribs, but the zoo then claimed that he was unhurt from his ordeal and he did not require hospital treatment. Ostriches are capable of killing lions, as well as humans, uh, with their sharp claws um, on each of their two-toed feet. The attack was high, uh, the attack highlighted uh, was highlighted on Russian news, um, and one of the eyewitnesses told them the bird was throwing him here and there for a while. So they are quite strong, and they can uh, use their very powerful neck to to throw you about. The reports claimed that the male ostrich mistook the man for a rival during its mating season, uh, but others said that he had poked the bird with a mop handle, which had infuriated it. Which you know, um, yeah, would would probably annoy me too. So. Ostriches, while not as documented, as dangerous as cassowaries, um, they they obviously can be, and it is important to uh, give them, uh, you know, enough space to work, If they're, especially if they're in mating season. It's really important. Now, one animal that we, uh, um, that's related to ostriches and cassowaries that we're not going to spend any time talking about is emus. I've spent a lot of time talking about emus. Emus, in a similar way to ostriches, they can be dangerous, but only when they're threatened, uh, they can kick, they can bite, but they're generally not a fatal animal. Um, of course, I, I did a whole episode on the Great Emu War very early on. It's probably one of those episodes we'll go back and redo now that I kind of know what I'm doing with this podcast. Um, but yeah, the Great Emu War, really interesting topic. Go back and listen to that. I think it was like within the first, like 15 episodes so if you want to hear about emus there those emus in that story by the way were not aggressive at all they were just nuisances they were knocking down fences and pecking corn i'm pretty sure uh, but there is another australian animal um, that is quite dangerous and if you're an australian and you're listening you have experience with this animal i guarantee you have experience with this animal because we all do of course i'm talking about the magpie more specifically i'm talking about the australian magpie now magpies are common birds they're found all over the world the world um now, during, but during the nesting season, they become territorial and display aggressive behavior. Australian magpies, the common Australian magpie, is particularly uh, aggressive when it comes to this. I've been swooped many times. Um, the story I told at the beginning of the episode was not actually about a magpie. It was about a butcher bird, um, which displays a similar swooping behavior. But magpies are, uh, like, everyone I know has been swooped by a magpie. It's um, it, it's it's a really bad problem in Australia. We take it for granted, but um, it, it can be quite terrifying. In fact, when I, um, I, when I was little, there was a, a thing in regional schools where kids had to have, like, they would get like an empty ice cream container, like a big plastic ice cream container, and they would draw eyes on the back of it, and they would put it on their heads when they were walking to and from school to avoid like getting their heads cracked open by by magpies. So we'll talk a little bit about it. Magpies, um, they've been known to aggressively swoop at people, uh, cyclists and joggers, and they target the head. It's an attempt to protect their nests. Um, now, while the attacks are startling, and they really are, they sometimes result in minor injuries. They're very rarely very serious, but there have been cases that have led to serious injury which we'll talk about soon uh, magpie attacks are common 
uh, more common than uh, attacks by larger birds, such as cassowaries and ostriches. In fact, I, I mean, I don't know. I would have to imagine magpie attacks have got to be the most common form of bird attacks, um, discounting, you know, domesticated animals. Um, magpies, they're known for protective behavior during nesting season, which typically occurs in the spring in Australia. So in Australia, the spring are the months of, uh, what would it be? Uh, was it uh, August, September, October? No, uh, September, October, November. That's the spring here in Australia. And that's where they're most dangerous. So we're, we are actually heading into that very soon. Um, they're territorial birds. They become protective when they have nests uh, with eggs and chicks, uh, and they perceive humans as potential threats during this period. They will swoop down to defend their nesting area. They'll also do it to other animals, such as dogs. Um, and it's important to know, you know, you don't always know when there's going to be a magpie nest. You're just out of nowhere, you'll start getting swooped, and it's uh, not a good time. Magpies exhibit swooping behavior during breeding season. This involves flying down towards perceived intruders, sometimes making contact or pecking at the person's head or face. They also will go for your ears a lot too. The swooping is an attempt to deter the intruder and to protect their nest. And I've got to say, it's quite effective. Um, Magpies often provide warning signs before swooping. Um, These signs can include loud vocalizations, uh, the flapping of their wings and dive bombing from nearby trees. They may also show aggression by snapping their beaks together as a warning signal. Magpies typically target the head and the face of perceived threats. This is likely because they have a reference for protecting their own vulnerable eye region from potential predators. So, um, yeah, magpies... Typically, they will they'll tr- go for your head noise. So there's some of the stories that I've heard that are, that are quite you know <laughs> dangerous. I, there have been stories of um, men and women and children who've had their eyes actually removed by magpies. Now they usually go for the back of the head when they're swooping, um, but if you turn around, it's not going to stop anyway. It'll go for your eyes. It doesn't like to go for the eyes because it knows that the eyes are like that's where the predator sees you and it'll attack you. But if it's going to go for your anywhere, it's going to go for there as well. So people have lost their eyes from this. Um, thankfully i believe not too recently but other people get injured in other ways if they're riding bikes and they get swooped they can fall off their bikes leading to very serious injuries including road rash and yeah concussions and broken bones as well um magpies are ubiquitous in urban areas all over australia um they're they're everywhere uh we have magpies that live in our backyard they're beautiful animals by the way i love magpies but they are assholes three months of the year um they've become accustomed to people now sometimes uh, a small percentage of the birds can become highly aggressive during the breeding season um uh, and occasionally what has to happen is the the council will have to send in people to kill magpies unfortunately when they get really aggressive and they swoop like particularly if it's in a a, like a high walkway area like a park or, or a footpath or something like that um they will they will attack everyone and anyone who goes past and essentially the only way to stop it is by sadly killing the parent which then obviously dooms the the chicks and the and the eggs as well which is which is really sad um yeah it's it's it's, it's really bad. I remember that it happened at our school. Um, when I was younger, there was a magpie in a tree that had moved to a tree where its nest was. And um, yeah, it would just swoop everyone. That, that area became... People were missing class. People were running late to class because they had to go the long way around the school to get to classes. Um, eventually, the school... Um, yeah, they brought in... A, it wasn't the police, but it was like some sort of animal person and they, they shot them. But yeah, police have shot magpies before as well. Um, yeah, they, they, it happens a lot. Um, attacks... Um, 
yeah, they occur like through most of Australia. Um, although apparently Tasmanian magpies are much less aggressive than their mainland counterparts. I don't really know why. Magpie attacks can cause injuries, but they're typically confined to wounds to the head. Um, now, being unexpectedly swooped while cycling, as I said, can result in a loss of control of the bicycle, which can cause to injury. And there have been fatal accidents as well, but they're not counted as magpie incidents uh, on the coroner's report. They're, they're road incidents, basically, by riding into a car or something like that. Magpies may also engage in an escalating series of behaviors to drive off intruders. The least threatening are alarm calls and distance swoops, um, where the birds fly within several meters from behind or perch nearby. Um, next in intensity are those close swoops where a magpie will swoop from behind uh, or the side and audibly snap their beaks uh, or even peck or bike at the face, neck, ears or eyes. Most rarely, a bird may dive bomb and strike the intruders, usually a cyclist's head with its chest. A magpie may rarely attack by landing on the ground in front of a person and lurching up and landing in the victim's chest and pecking at the eyes and face. That is a, that's a bad way to go, man. Wow. So yeah, magpies, probably the most common form of bird attack. They're generally not too bad. Um, cassowary is very intense. It doesn't happen very often, but yet you can get stabbed and disemboweled, essentially. And also just because of their sheer size are pretty terrifying to come against. But like we said in the outset, you know, birds are not currently... Um, a species that we need to to think about very often. We're not. We don't have to be too worried about birds. This is this has not always been the case, however. I want to talk about one more bird. That's uh, fortunately for us, it's extinct. Um, I'm talking about a bird from New Zealand called the Haas eagle. So the Haas eagle. It's a massive, ex thankfully extinct bird of prey that once inhabited New Zealand. It was named after Sir Julius von Haast, a German geologist and explorer who played a significant role in its discovery. So the Haas eagle was one of, if not the largest known eagle species to have ever existed. It had a wingspan that was estimated to be around 2.6 to 3 meters long. That's 7 to 10 feet for the Americans listening. And it weighed up to 14 to 18 kilograms, which for a bird, remember they need to be lights so they can fly. That is heavy. Its size and weight are comparable to some small aircraft. Think, just think about that. It had a robust build and it was adapted to hunt large prey, um, including uh, large flightless birds, including the moa, which is another extinct species of bird. Um, due to its size and strength, it could swoop down from the sky and could take prey that weighed up to 500 pounds, which is 227 kilograms, guys, which is far larger than any prey typically hunted by modern eagles. Haas' eagle likely used its powerful talents to grasp and kill its prey. Now, the Haas' eagle became extinct around 600 years ago, which is not that long ago, to really, to be frank, shortly after the decline and extinction of its made food source, the moa. The extinction of the moa likely led to the eagle's demise as it lo loses its primary source of sustenance. Additionally, the arrival of humans in New Zealand introduced the pressures such as habitat modification and hunting, which may have contributed to the eagle's extinction. Now, we know about the Haas eagle because fossils were discovered in several areas in New Zealand, providing scientists with insights into its anatomy, behavior, and ecological role. 
The fossils have enabled researchers to reconstruct the eagle's physical features and have estimated its size and lifestyle. It has, um, you know, the extinction of the eagle along with the moa, it had a significant impact on New Zealand's ecosystem. The loss of this, you know, the large herbivore, which is the moa and their primary predator, resulted in a major uh, ecological change and it altered the dynamics of the island's biodiversity. Today, the Haas eagle is an iconic symbol of New Zealand's prehistoric fauna. It's impressive size and predatory nature make it a fascinating subject of scientific study and captures the imagination of all New Zealanders interested in ancient ecosystems and extinct species. Now, there is an article that came out a while ago um, that kind of indicated that the Haas eagle was, was, it could have killed people. Now, um, it's, it's it, there's no there's no evidence there's no uh, evidence that it ever did kill humans um but it could have and that's, that's and and that's the thing you know like i was talking to my partner about this the other day there's no ecological evidence that like megalodon would kill people if people were around right but it would if they were there and it's the same with this like there's no there's no evidence that it happened but like but why not uh, and I don't even know what like evidence you would you would find about that. I guess like maybe a dude's skeleton in a big nest. I don't know. Anyway, it's a massive scary animal, and I'm and I'm glad it doesn't exist anymore. I'm really glad that it died. I'm sad that the moa died though. It's a really cute one. Yeah. So let's talk about birds in general. Obviously, the variety of birds they pose no significant danger to human beings. Um, now, it's always a good idea to observe and respect birds' natural behavior and to maintain a safe distance, especially during breeding seasons. Um, and if you encounter an aggressive bird, the, the best thing you can do is just retreat calmly and to avoid provoking or threatening the bird any further. If you have any concerns about birds or their behavior in your area, um, it's recommended that you just contact local wildlife authorities or bird experts, if you know a bird expert, who can provide specific guidelines and advice based on your location. And there you have it, folks. That was the Birds of Prey episode. Very good, very, very well done, past Chapman, as I do like to give myself a pat on the back. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. That's the end of part one of our look back at 2023. A really long episode, it turns out. Um, I, back when we started the show last year um the episodes were much shorter they were like half an hour long but you guys want more you guys said no we want an hour long episode and i try to give that to you every single week and so that's why this episode is gone for i don't know how long i'm gonna guess once i stitch it all together it's gonna be looking at close to three hours if it's any more than that that's absolutely wild um so yeah, <laughs> thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to save all the happy, sappy nonsense for the end of next episode, which is going to be our last episode of 2023. So I will see you then. Have a fantastic week. And as always, please, my friends, stay safe. Because as we've learned, it's a jungle out there. <laughs>